This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 92. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha, and today we have another fantastic interview for your folks. Get excited because we are interviewing the Plus Ultra translator of My Hero Academia, Dr. Stone, Dragon Ball Super, Hell's Paradise, Jigokuraku, and so many more for his media. And he's done work for so many other publishers as well. We're interviewing Caleb Cook on the show this week. It's a a fantastic conversation. It goes into great detail about Caleb's time in the jet program and then how he got his start in the industry. We talk about his sculpture art. It's a really fun time. I guess one thing we need to note, though, a bit of a disclaimer, is that there were problems with the recording of that episode, or rather, we did lose some audio during that uh, episode. Yeah, guess who, right? <laughs> well, no, it happens every now and again. But yeah, we lost Colton's audio for that, unfortunately, due to just a technical mishap. So I did my best to edit around Colton's audio, and I think that the core of the conversation we had with Caleb is preserved, and you can listen to it and feel seamless enough. But yeah, sadly, Colton was a part of that discussion, but you won't be hearing him. But, you know, hopefully we're going to have Caleb on the show again, and you can hear a conversation between all three of us uh, in the near future, I think. Just just, just pretend I'm there just kind of listening to the conversation. There, I'm, I'm there in spirit. Yeah, I mean, he was on the call. I think maybe if you pay very close attention, you might hear parts or you might see where Caleb was responding to something Colton asked instead of myself, even though I, I also recorded transitional bits to kind of keep the conversation, you know, uh, coherence throughout. So any questions that were lost, I re-recorded, but still. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to listening to uh, to how you edited around me. Um, I'm sure you did a very good job. Thank you. But in other podcast news, just to get that out of the way at the top of the show, we have our next Patreon bonus pod dropping on our Patreon on June 30th, and it will be an exclusive episode of At movies where Vix and I talk about Captain Marvel. I Ooh. thought, hey, this would be a good month to release our Captain Marvel podcast, considering every time I watch TV, I see trailers for the DVD release. It's like every ad break. I'm like, well, I guess Captain Marvel is still in the conversation. People are still thinking about it. Why not release it now and on our Patreon? I think it's an amazing episode. Because Vix, for this episode, she read every Captain Marvel comic. You know, the complete comics history of Carol Danvers. Wow. And Vix, notoriously for many years, she hated Carol Danvers. She thought Captain Marvel was a terrible character. But after going through all of her comics, Vix really grew to appreciate and respect and love her character and her arc. And so it's a really fascinating exploration of how the character of Carol Danvers changed from her roots as, you know, just the, the girlfriend of Captain Marvel, of Marvel, to being a 
icon in her own right, a character in her own right, a feminist symbol. It's really, really intriguing. And then we discuss the ways in which the movie didn't live up to the legacy of her comics, but, you know, it was still a decently enjoyable movie at the end of the day as well, and definitely did not deserve all the uh, inane backlash it got from certain hate groups online. But it's a great conversation. It's over two and a half hours. It's a really fascinating discussion of comics history. At some point down the line, I might just... Uh, release the part of the conversation where Vix just details the entire history of Captain Marvel on the public feed, you know, just a few months after this Patreon episode has been up. Because I think that part of the discussion was really fascinating here, and I would love for as many people as possible to hear it too. But yeah, that's dropping on the Patreon this Sunday. I'm really excited for it. I think if you uh, were a fan of the movie, if you're a fan of the character, or even if you weren't but are interested in learning more, I think that's absolutely must-listen. And you can listen to it by pledging to our $5 tier and get access to that and all our previous bonus podcasts, like the That Time I Got Reincarnated as, uh, as Yansha podcast and the Monster Girl Manga Fight. So definitely look forward to that. Uh, you also want to subscribe to that tier because uh, I I am in the midst of working on a few bonus podcasts of my own, maybe a maybe a read through series of uh, of some of some manga that I might not be able to come on the main show to talk about. I don't know. I'm still mm. we're still working on it. I'm really excited for that. I think all our listeners will be too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely have a lot of ideas for that kind of thing in mind. Um. But for now, um, Lum, I think you're um, you're also going to be at Anime Expo uh, the week after this episode comes out. That I will be. I will be there with V-Lord and with Sakaki and Jekka. We're all going to be hanging out at Anime Expo. It's going to be incredibly busy. The schedule is packed. There isn't enough time in the day to do everything. Tough choices will have to be made. Oof. I am going to tell you right now that, you know, I'm probably not going to attend the Otomo panel because that's up against Pokemon and one means a lot more to me. But yeah, there's just so many things going on at Anime Expo. It's going to be crazy, but I'm looking forward to it. Just a little stressed out that, oh my God, I just hope I get into all the thing events I want. <laughs> But I think there's, you know, so many fun things that are going to come out of that. Obviously, uh, we'll probably record a podcast on our Anime Expo experience, report the news from the con shortly after we get back from it. Uh, Depending on how things pan out, there might be some cool things we record during the con that you might see come out. I'll definitely try to write up some... Uh, reviews of all the premieres that we go see, you know, uh, maybe do an audio version of those uh, posts for the podcast feed too. We'll see. Uh, I think it's going to be really exciting and uh, I'm excited for the experience. And if you guys are going to be at AX, uh, reach out and maybe we can meet up and hang out. I think that'd be a lot of fun too. But for now, we should head into some news we want to discuss about, starting, as always, with the monthly book scan list. Yeah, so we're going to start with the monthly uh, book scan list uh, for May in particular. And uh, right at number one, 
we have volume 16 of One Punch Man, uh, which I think is uh, pretty cool. Uh, I'm I'm sure. I mean, obviously, One Punch Man, like you know, My Hero Academia and stuff like Tokyo Ghoul and everything, is a pretty evergreen title. You know, it's uh, One Punch Man probably. You know, it, it doesn't have as many showings on the list as stuff like My Hero Academia, but it's still pretty popular nonetheless, even even with uh, some of the divisive, you know, opinions on season two of the anime. You know, it, it's, it still continues to do well, which is good. And then um, just, I, I think I, I'll just get this out of the way for now. Um, so as far as My Hero Academia is showing on this list... Uh, out of the 12 manga titles on this list, uh, My Hero Academia takes up about five spots. So just bare, barely half the list uh, is uh, is all My Hero Academia. Not as dominating as in previous months, but still quite Not as majority. dominating, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as what volumes are on the list, uh, we have volume one coming in at number four, volume two coming in at number nine. With uh, the newest volume, I believe, volume 18 coming at number 10, as well as volume 3 at number 16 and volume 4 coming at number 20. Um, the first couple of volumes on the list, I'm sure, I, I, I want to believe are probably because, uh, you know, season 4 is coming up and I'm sure people are maybe trying to catch up, I'm sure. Or maybe a lot of people are just getting into it in general. I don't know. Um, but either way... My Hero Academia, again, not as dominating, but certainly still has a presence on the list. At number two, we have the Deluxe Edition of Berserk, Volume 1. Again, as we now know, or we, we've known it for a while, uh, again, it's uh, Dark Horse Comics' uh, number one selling title at this point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's it's nice to see Berserk on the list. Um, at number three, we have Dragon Ball Super Volume Five. Uh, Dragon Ball Super, obviously, being a, a, a just a heavily uh, popular franchise all on its own, so that's not a surprise. Um, at number eleven, I'm really happy to see this. Uh, we have Volume One of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part Four: Diamond is Unbreakable. Um, so I'm really glad that Part Four is doing well. Um, that, that really makes me feel good about us, you know, at some point, maybe possibly getting more of the manga, uh, from Viz down the line. I definitely am confident that they'll continue to translate the series, but I'm just glad to see that sales are holding strong. And definitely it's really nice to see JoJo's on a book scan list. We don't often see it, but it's great to know that it's incredibly popular and it seems to be doing really well. Mm-hmm. At number 12, we have One Piece Volume 90. Uh, One Piece every once in a while. or the, It feels like every list we, we have at least a spot for One Piece. So um, I'm glad that One Piece is, is doing good over here. Um, and then at number 14, we have Junji Ito Smashed. Uh, another uh, story collection from the now famous Junji Ito over here in the West. Uh and then, uh, last but not least, at number 19, we have Volume 15 of Black Clover. Um, Black Clover not being something we see all the time on this list, but has has made appearances, you know, now and again, uh, which I think is uh, which I think is a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. It's 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 always nice to see Black Clover getting getting some attention and love over here. So yeah, 
I mean, once again, this is a list dominated by Viz Media titles, in particular Shonen Jump titles. I think it's really great, though, that Berserk is up right up there as number two. I'm glad that it does so well for Dark Horse. I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of variety, but it's a whole lot of series that I love and glad I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a, a lot of really good titles on here that I think still deserve the attention, so. Most definitely. But it's great to see manga doing so well, but now, sadly, I think we need to transition into some uh, more bittersweet news by talking about series endings. And I think a really big one uh, we need to start off talking about, considering a tweet that blew up on our Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> and Colton, would you like to take it away? No, no kidding. Um, So uh, we talked about it, I think, like a week or two ago at this point. Um, that uh, Gintama was going to be ending. So originally, here's the thing. So uh, Gintama originally was supposed to end on June 17th on the Gintama app. Um, but Sirachi being Sirachi delayed it yet again to um to the uh I guess in our time to the 19th. Uh, over, <laughs> I guess over in Japan it would have been the 20th, but either way, like, it's still delayed it for a couple of days, I'm sure just because, like, maybe he wasn't done drawing. It was, it was a 59-page chapter, so it was pretty long. Um, but yeah, it got delayed yet again, but thankfully not, not for too long. Um, so, officially, at the time of this recording, uh, Gintama has ended, for real this time, uh, gonna call the date now, on... Yes, on June 19th, uh, 2019, uh, this past Wednesday, again, at the time of this recording. Um, so yeah, uh, we, I, I had tweeted about it on the, um, on the Manga Mavericks Twitter, and, um, it blew the fuck up. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, man, see, it, it was, cause, you know, it was already doing better than, uh, cause, uh, we were kind of talking about this off mic. Um, back when Toriko ended, I kind of gave it the same sort of uh, obituary-esque kind of tweet. Like, hey, Toriko ended on this day. And I mean, granted, we had just started the Twitter around that time. So like we didn't have a we didn't have much of a following back then. So I think it only had like four retweets. But, you know, it was it was st- I I think that's something I'm going to I'm going to do in the future is um and I mean, if I were caught up the Food Wars, I would have done it, the same thing for Food Wars. But, you know, for, for stuff that like has really been around a while and like a lot of people like, I really want to try to make tweets about that kind of thing where it's like, oh, such and such series ended. I think, you know, people really um, appreciate those tweets, uh, depending on what series where you talk about it and whatnot. Especially since some people didn't know the series was ending. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, we got a shit ton of quote tweets. Um, so much that like the 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 day after I tweeted that, I was trying to go through my notifications. Uh, there was a point where my notifications stopped. Like I couldn't, I couldn't go past a certain point. So there was probably <laughs> some quote tweets I I couldn't read. Um, and like yeah, like I like literally every couple of seconds we would get a retweet on it, and like every couple of seconds we get like three more quote tweets. Like uh, just. All ranging from 
oh, this shit's ending? To, man, I gotta start reading Gintama, and, oh man, my heart's breaking. Why is this ending? I never thought it would end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it faked you out so many times before. I mean, how many times have we reported that, oh, Gintama is going to be coming to an end? Oh, wait, no, it's not. It's continuing. About three, t- about three or four times at this point, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, like, in a way, like, it felt like we broke the news to over 2,000 people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but, um, but no, yeah, that was, uh, I, that was, that was really fun to experience our first really viral tweet. Um, I, I've, I've, like, even on my personal account, I've never had something go past, like, maybe, like, 100 or 200 retweets or something. Like, I'm, I, I was, I was really riding that high all day long yesterday. Um, and bragging about it to my friends and everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was fun. But uh, but yes, um, I, I promise we didn't just bring this up just to brag about our viral tweet. Uh, you know, it, I, I thought it'd be worth mentioning that Gintama has ended for real. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure at some point, like, you know, somewhere down the line, Sorachi will be like, I feel like doing another chapter of Gintama. And I'm sure they'll put it in jump. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll see... Like Gintama's the kind of thing where I I would be surprised if we didn't see Gin and the others again just kind of doing some some wacky shenanigans like as like a special like anniversary chapter or something like I'm sure maybe that could happen down the line but for now uh we're not getting any more of it. Uh the the story has concluded. Um I haven't read the chapter yet myself but I'm sure I'm just going to start sobbing uncontrollably once I'm done so Looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm sure down the line, Sarachi will make a sequel manga to Kinkama called Borutama. <laughs> you spill, spit my water. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> Borutama. About a Gintoki's son who does not want to be like his dad at all, but is, is basically his dad anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I mean, if I were Gin's son, I don't think I'd want to be like Gin either, but I don't, so I don't really blame him. Uh, but anyway, Gintama's finally ended. We can rejoice and cry all at the same time. I'm happy for Sirachi. Um I mean, I'm, I made I made a whole tweet thread about my feelings on Gintama. Obviously, I'm a huge fan, and I'm, you know, as as, as much as I like to make fun of Gintama and how long it took to end, like I'm I'm still kind of sad that it ended. You know, even even with the eventual like return of the anime, you know, I'm sure coming next year or whatnot. But again, I'm I'm sad that I'm sad that it's finally come to an end. But you know, I like I owe a lot to Gintama. Like I've made a lot of really good friends through it. Um, I'm podcasting technically because of it. Um, Life Lessons was the first podcast I ever really like started up on my own. So. Uh, there's that I I'm really thankful for, um, and I'm sure down the line we'll like I really want to do a manga Mavericks episode on Gintama, but it's also the kind of thing that like I really want to like take a step back from the series a little bit now that it's ending, and I also really like Gintama is something that like means so much to me that like I want to make sure that if we do an episode on it that we do it right and that we put a lot of work into it. So. Um, mm-hmm. And and also I still haven't I still haven't technically read all the manga, um, <laughs> but uh, but oh uh, yeah that that'll come eventually. But for now, um, I hope Sirachi gets all the rest he can, and I'm I'm hoping that I'm hoping that we get more work from him at some point though. So 
Definitely. I'd love to see another manga by the gorilla. But yeah, I definitely think we should talk about Gintama at some point on the show because this show pretty much exists because of Gintama. Because we first met and talked to each other on Life Lessons. And, uh, yeah, that's pod- right. And then Manga Mavericks just came about just a month after that. So, yeah, uh, this podcast owes a huge debt to Gintama as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. So without Gintama, Manga Mavericks wouldn't exist. So thank you, Gintama. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. But yeah, Gintama ending is truly an end there and a sad day. But it's not the only huge Shonen Jump series that has ended recently because Food Wars has also concluded its run in Shonen Jump with chapter 315 as of June 15th. And the ending earned mixed reception. I personally enjoyed it because it brought things around to the rivalry between Soma and Arena and ended with a declaration from both of them that they're going to continue to keep striving to push each other to new hearts by competing with one another and continually trying to make better and better dishes. And I liked that aspect. That was the most... I, I really was into their rivalry as a central relationship to the series. I'm glad it concluded by bringing it back to that perspective. So I was satisfied in that respect. But the way the chapter ends, you know, nothing is resolved, per se. Because they don't make the dish that they're building up needs to be made. Uh, they don't really end kind of the tournament they're at, either. Like, the last panel of the manga is... Literally, Soma's saying, now, let's have another match. And then you see Shokugeki no Soma, the end, right after that. So it's a bit of a tease. But that being said, it's not quite over just yet. Because there will be three epilogue chapters called Food Wars Le Dessert that will be run in Jump Giga starting with the issue releasing on June 27th. So there's technically three more chapters of the series. We'll see what the epilogue will entail, but perhaps it'll provide a little more closure and maybe address some of the things I know a lot of people are disappointed in. I mean, I don't know how much Sakura can do in three chapters to make people feel uh, more satisfied with how Megumi was treated during the series, you know. Maybe he could focus one chapter on her, like, getting a a big win, and that'll make everyone happy about that. But, you know, I think, uh, at the very least, if a series wraps up by, you know, showing, like, what happened to all the characters, showing, like, the destination, or rather the long journey that Soma and Arena's rivalry takes them to, the heights it takes them to, I think that'd be really satisfying. But... Food Wars is not going out on that much of a low note because they are going to be continuing the anime. Uh, The fourth season is going to be coming in October. It's going to be called Shinuzar, the Plate of God. Presumably, it will at least adapt through the rest of the Regimen du Cuisine and conclude the central arc, but... Perhaps it'll be too core and have enough time to adapt all the blue. Maybe in adaptation, the anime could improve on the final arc of the series. Uh, we will see about that. But I think that it's pretty great that Food Wars will be getting, you know, a final season. Because I know a lot of people 
have been wanting that. And it would be really disappointing if the anime never finished the regimen, the cuisine in particular, and concluded the central arc. And anime viewers would not get to see, like, the end of that story. So I'm very happy about that. But, uh, yeah, Food Wars has also ended. Um, I'm very sad that I couldn't catch up with it in time for it to end. Um, but, you know, I think I think I, I probably talked about this on the show before, but I had seen a lot of mixed reactions to this last bit of the story. And I'd even have some people tell me, like, don't, don't bother keeping up with it. And I'm just like, oh, well, you know, like, I still like Food Wars enough to where, like, I'm I'm still interested in, like, seeing the story to completion and maybe even hopefully like maybe do an episode of the podcast about it or something to something I kind of always had in the back of my mind. Like, I, I mean, I, I like food wars, so, you know, I want to see it through to the end. Yeah. I definitely think the bitterness towards the direction of that final arc will subside over time, but yeah, it wasn't a very satisfying arc as a whole. There were a lot of parts of it that, weren't very enjoyable but the series as a whole i still do really enjoy there are characters in it that i really love arena in particular is one of my favorite characters from that series uh whereas and i was generally very satisfied with her arcs through that through the series so yeah i think that'd be great to talk about food wars on the show sometime down the line maybe not this year because our schedule is packed and it is a long series but perhaps early next year around the time when the next season of the anime will end and then with both versions ended maybe that'll be a good time to reflect on the series maybe that'll finally be the thing to finally get me to finish it (laughs) (laughs) i've 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 literally said like almost every year at the end of the year when we uh uh, while this podcast has been running that like i want to read more food wars i want to read more food wars and maybe and, and maybe next year will be the year that i finally finish it i don't know we'll have to see but uh, I think that's all the serialization news we have at this point, um, and I think we should just move on to some licensing stuff. And uh, uh, the first thing that uh, I really want to talk about is, uh, you know, we we have some new additions to the Shonen Jump Vault in particular, which uh, I'm really happy about these in particular, because uh, for as long as we have been talking about the Shonen Jump Vault, a lot of us have been mentioning how, oh, well, you know, they should really add... Uh, they, they should really add some of the series that have only that that are only available through the old run of digital jumps stuff like uh, Hi-Fi Cluster and Stealth Symphony. You know we have we've covered on the podcast before, but like I literally was only able to read those because I happen to have access to those back issues. But uh, we don't have that problem anymore because uh, now you can read um, four new series on the Shonen Jump Vault, uh, including. Like I said, Hi-Fi Cluster, Stealth Symphony, as well as Love Rush and Red Sprite. All of these have had, unfortunately, very short-lived runs in Jump, as uh, they were uh, they were canceled before the Prime. Unfortunately, most some of them, uh, really all of them, don't really get to live up to their potential. But you know, for for what they are, I still really enjoyed a lot of them. Uh, like I said, we, we were kind of tweeting about it a couple days ago, you know, about some of the, like, a, a lot of these we have covered on the show. Like, we have we have episodes dedicated to Hi-Fi Cluster, Stealth Symphony, and Love Rush in particular. Um, we haven't done that with Red Sprite yet, um, but I know that when it was a jump start back then, we definitely talked about our first impressions. And uh, Red Sprite is definitely uh, on the list as far as, like, what canceled jump manga we want to cover on the show at some point. 
But uh, yeah, it looks like Viz and Shona Jump uh, maybe have been secretly listening to the podcast because, uh, you know, if you pay $2, uh, you can literally read all of these in their entirety. And um, they're not just lost to time in these back issues of Jump that you can't uh, get access to anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad to see them be added to the vault. I was wondering where they were when the vault was launched, because I was like, you know, this would be a great opportunity to finally allow people to read these series that have been fully translated but have only ever been available through Shonen Jump back issues. And now you can, and I'm really happy about that, because even though these were short-lived series, that series that were ostensibly cancelled these series are really interesting to read and kind of interesting to see just uh, just different ideas and like kind of how they panned out you know whether they were successful or not whether they managed to conclude satisfyingly or abruptly i think short-lived jump series are very interesting to talk about and you know think about and talk about and all that so i love the series that you know Holden and Maxi have been doing on them. Uh, I love the discussions we've been having on them in general. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad they've been at it. And I'm hoping that more get at in the future. Like, uh, I mean, the big one now is Robot Lasering, because that's a 70 chapter series that has been fully translated by Viz that's not available in the Shonen Jump Vault by the creator of Proca's Basketball. And I think it really ought to be there for people to read. It's a, it's a long series, and it's a, you know, even though, again, that's another one that had to end abruptly, it's still a pretty great read. I I think so i would definitely love to see it be included on there mm-hmm. I, I would like the chance to read that on the app um it would be a lot easier to do that than to literally download every issue that includes robot laser beam um but no yeah I'm, I'm sure it's worth mentioning also that like the shonen jump vault is literally the only place you could read some of these. Like, these are not collected, um, I guess with the exception, well, well I guess, yeah, n- n- uh, uh, Red Spray, Hi-Fi Cluster, Cell Symphony, and Love Rush were never collected in volume form, even digitally. Um, so if you pay $2, like, you're basically, you're basically paying for, uh, to be able to read them in the only place you can. So these are technically vault exclusives, which I think is pretty cool. I think out of the four, I would really highly recommend Stealth Symphony. Um, I think out of the four of them that have been added, Stealth Symphony has the most satisfying conclusion. And I think is the one out of the four that was able to make cancellation kind of work for them, um, all things considered. Um, And is probably also my favorite episode of the Cancelled Jump Series podcast that we've done. So yeah, um, and I, and I'm sure we'll probably link in the show notes uh, our Twitter thread where you can uh, uh, listen to our discussions and whatnot because I believe all of these are up on our YouTube channel as well. Mm-hmm, they are, and we have a very long playlist of all our discussions of jump starts in general that you can parse through. And I've been uploading like all of the ones that haven't been on YouTube yet recently. So by the time that you're listening to this episode of the podcast, like. Every discussion we've had about a new Shonen Jump series, a jump start, will be up on YouTube. So definitely you can browse through that playlist and listen to all those. But yeah, we'll link our podcast uh, on Jump Starts in the description. And 
it's just uh, very happy these have finally been added on. Just more content, especially, you know, really cool exclusive content to the Shonen Jump Vault. It's really nice to see. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you have the time and got the money, go read them. Most definitely. But now, let's move on to some licensing news from Yen Press. And they have made quite a few announcements. First off, we've got some spin-offs of some very popular series. Uh, first, we've got Shadow Student Council Vice President Gives Her All, uh, which is a spinoff of Prison School about Mako Shiraki, the Vice President of the Shadow Student Council. And uh, we also have Magia Record, Puella Magi Madoka Side Story, which is a Madoka Magica spinoff that's actually going to get an anime later this year. And there's actually a panel at AX this year about this series uh, to talk about it, promote it and stuff. But it's basically about this new character named Uroha that chases a tiny Kyubei to a city where magical girls gather. And then it's like, what secrets does the city hold? And will Iroha cope with a new life as being a magical girl herself? And this manga is based on a uh, upcoming mobile game. Again, this is going to be the start of like a whole new multimedia franchise uh, of the series. Where it's like, there's going to be this game, anime, manga, all that stuff. But uh, there's also the Omnibus edition of uh, King of Eden, uh, which is going to be coming out as well. And that is by uh, Takshi Nagasaki and uh, artist Sang Jo Lee. Uh, and that's about a remote village that was massacred. And then a single man was survived the aftermath. But the killer they brought down from the mountains is impossible for them to contain. And the world has been stained by blood before. It will be again. And so, yeah... It's an intriguing. I've heard a lot about the series. It seems very intriguing. Uh, Takashi Nagasaki was the co-author of 20th Century Boys. Master Keaton and Pluto, you know, doesn't get as quite as much a claim or recognition as Arasawa, but you know, he was a big part of the series as well. So I think it'll be a very interesting read if you're a fan of uh, suspense thrillers like those. But all three of these titles are coming out in December, so look forward to them around December. Maybe get them as a Christmas time gift. But we also got a new uh, Kingdom Hearts manga and novel from Yen Press. So we got the Kingdom Hearts 3 manga that uh, has started being publishing on digital platforms like Comixology and Bookwalker. It's drawn by Shiro Amano. It's not being released simultaneously with the Japanese release, but it will be releasing periodically. And it is going to be released in print down the line, but there are no exact plans for that just yet. But uh, Yen Press has also licensed the Kingdom Hearts X novel. Which is going to also be released sometime down the line. I think on uh, December 10th it is going to come out. And that's written by Tomoko Kanemaki Shiramano, Tetsuya Nomura, and Kazushige Nojima. So, yeah, if you're a Kingdom Hearts fan, you've got a new manga and a novel to look forward to in, uh, in the near future. Right, but uh, moving on from that, uh, so Comixology recently has uh, rescued some more Tokyo Pop licenses, it looks like. The first of which being uh, Mars from Fuyumi Sorio, 
as well as you're a pet from Yaoi uh, Ogawa. And uh, like I said, both of these series were originally uh, licensed by Tokyo Pop. And it uh, looks like both of them have had their sort of share of uh, live action adaptations and whatnot. And uh, now you can read both of these series in their entirety, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Still waiting for Comixology to maybe pick up the original GTO. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. I think that's one that we've been wanting for forever. But I'm really glad to see a classic shoujo manga like Mars be licensed, rescued, be made available on digital. So many people are excited and happy about that. I have a few volumes of Mars in print, but not the entire thing. And those volumes are hard to find. So I'm super glad that now it's very accessible on digital. And I am really excited for Mars in particular, uh, you know, to maybe one of these days finally read, uh, finish the entire thing. Because I only had the first couple volumes. So I'm very glad that uh, now all of it is very accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what other Tokyo Pop titles Comixology puts up. But I think that's about it for licensing news. That is it, and now we're going to move on to some fun interest pieces. And first off is a really interesting little bit of trivia. That is Nisio Isin, the author of the Monogatari series, is the number two author with the most translated books in the U.S. in the last decade. 19 Nisio Isin books have been published in the U.S. since 2008 and through 2018. And that is just really cool. I mean, you know, there are, it is noted that light novels are not represented in uh, the publisher's weekly database. And that's where you know, this information comes from, the publisher's weekly translating database. So they don't count like Reki Kawahara's Sword Art Online series, which are, you know, light novels. And uh, he has technically more books available in English, like 40 books. And then uh, Takeha's Invaders of the Rokujuma series has 19 volumes that have been published in English just in the span of a year between 2017 and 2018. So there are technically Japanese authors that have more books available in print, but not like novel novels, like uh, light novels. So in terms of just like novels, Nijo Izin ranks as number two, which is pretty cool. And I've been getting into Nizo Eason's work a little bit recently because during uh, the drive that Reload and I did to LA to move him in there, we listened to the audiobooks of uh, Neko Monogatari White and Pizu Monogatari. And I thought they were pretty fun listens. Uh, I enjoyed the story. I, I really enjoyed Neko Monogatari White in particular uh, just because I thought that. The character of Tsubasa Hanakawa is very interesting to me. And so it was kind of neat to see a story told from her perspective. So, but, uh, yeah, I, I am getting into the Monogatari series a little bit now, thanks to those audiobooks. So, uh, really cool to see Nizo Izin uh, have, like, a, you know, a statistic like this. Uh, and that, you know, he has so many books available over here. I'll definitely have to check out more of them down the line. Mm, so so are those just, like, available on, like, Audible, or...? Yeah, I think we just downloaded them from Audible. Mm, that's that's really neat. I, I I actually didn't know those were available as audiobooks. Maybe maybe I'll have to check those out. Yeah, they're pretty great. Uh, Christina V 
is Sabasa Hanakawa, I think. So she did a really great job. I mean, she played also, I think, all the female characters, basically. Uh, I think she was also uh, Kishat and, you know, whatever. So, like, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the performances uh, in that audio, but they got, like, you know, anime voice actors who did a really damn good job. Ooh, that's that's pretty neat, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I really enjoyed that. Definitely will continue to check out more of that series. But now we are moving on to Anime Expo news, and there's a lot of it. First, let's talk about the Viz stuff, because Viz Media has so many things going on this year at Anime Expo. I mean, the big thing is Bisco Hattori is coming into the show as an official guest of honor this year. She'll have a panel to herself. That is going to be on Friday from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. in the room 408AB. And that's like the big one. And she also has like a couple different autograph signings, which uh, one is on Thursday, July 4th at 1.40 p.m. The next is on Friday, July 5th at 5 p.m. And then there's one on Saturday, July 6th at 10 a.m. And all of those are at the autograph area at Kentia Hall. And to get an autograph from Biscottori, you need to uh, line up at the ticket booth, the autograph ticket booth, which starts at 8 a.m. each day. And these things are very limited. So if you really want this, you need to line up early in advance to ensure your spot because there are only 75 guaranteed autograph tickets and then there are 50 like placeholder maybe tickets but beyond those you're out of luck if you're not one of the first 75 to 125 people you're not getting your autograph so you really uh you really need to commit and really go for it if you really want to get uh something signed by Biscuitori. Viz also has a couple other fun, you know, panels. You know, they're going to have their just regular industry panel where the anime man and the a team from Powerhouse Animation who works on the Castlevania anime is going to be on that. They're going to host uh, on the Shonen Jump panel uh, Zach Aguilar who plays Genos in One Punch Man and Billy Kometz who is Josuke in Diamond is Unbreakable. So the Shonen Jump panel is going to be on Saturday, July 6th from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Then, of course, there's the Sailor Moon panel, which is going to have all the Sailor Moon voice cast, pretty much, including the new voice actors for the Starlights and Sailor Stars. And so that's going to be Saturday from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. in Petrie Hall. So there's also going to be a Sailor Moon voice cast standing in Kentia Hall that same day at 2.50 p.m. So there's a lot of Viz events this year. There's also going to be an opportunity to have your portfolio renewed for the Viz Originals imprint. There's going to be a booth set up at the Annex at Kentia Hall, Artist Alley, Table A47, it's going to be directed by Found Law, who is executive editor for his original. So you can will be able to get her your work reviewed by her or you know an associate, and you know get some feedback. And I think that would be really helpful if you want to like uh, participate in the Viz Originals imprinting. You know, get your work picked up. I think that'd be really cool. Uh, and of course, you know, Viz has their general boot at uh, boot 
2206 that's going to have, like, giveaways. It's going to have a lot of exclusive items. Like, you know, if you buy something there, you get the limited tote bag that has, like, two designs. We don't know what those are yet. But uh, last year, it was, like, Pokemon and MHA. And uh, MHA ran out, like, on the first day. Which is fine for me, because I love Pokemon, but... Yeah, uh, we'll see what the designs are this year. But some uh, exclusive items Viz is going to have at AX this year are going to include Orin High School Hostel Volume 1 with a variant cover, a Sailor Stars t-shirt, a Golden Wind pin and figure, My Hero Academia One Punch Man manga replicas, and a One Punch Man pin set. So, you know, I definitely will probably pick up that uh, Host Club variant cover and uh, the Sailor Star shirt in particular. So... Yeah, definitely hop on by the Viz boot to pick those up. But there are a lot of other exciting events that are going on at AX because My Hero Academia was such a huge deal last year uh, with the Two Heroes premiere that, you know, they are going to repeat it again by hosting the Season 4 premiere at AX this year. Oof. That's going to be on... July 6th, Saturday at 10 a.m. It's going to have the voice actors who play Toru, uh, Karu Nazuka, uh, then uh, David Matranga, uh, the English voice actor for Todoroki, Patrick Seiss, the English actor for Endeavor, and Riccio uh, Fajardo, the English actor for Mirio. They're all going to be at the screening and, you know, probably talk about the roles and stuff. But, yeah, if you want to see the premiere of MHA like three months early yeah you definitely head to that panel just be warned uh expect it to be insanely competitive (laughs) if last year was any uh indication i am very grateful that we have pressed this year but even then i am not uh, i am i don't feel safe uh not lining up early for this to ensure (laughs) that we get in because it is gonna be so competitive mha is so big there are like three hundred thousand people in anime expo those rooms do not fit us three hundred thousand people so you're you yeah you gotta really get in line early uh to get in there but yeah that's exciting that's not the only premiere that's happened at anime expo because uh not only is uh, Soul Leader creator Atsushi Okubo going to be there, but he's also going to be there uh, as part of a panel for the anime adaptation of his sequel work, uh, the Fire Force series, which is being published in you know Weekly Shonen Magazine. That's getting an anime adaptation for premiering next season. And there is going to be a sneak peek premiere of the series uh, at a panel on July 5th at 1 p.m., you know, so Atsushi Okubo is going to be on that panel. Megumu Tsuchiya is going to be at the panel. Uh, they are the uh, Okubo's editor. And it's going to premiere the English dub version of Fire Force at that panel. But yeah, if you want to see the show a little bit early, uh, you can definitely attend that panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's worth mentioning that uh, Fire Force has also been confirmed to be a four-core series at this point? That it has been, which... You know, there's definitely enough material for that because it's like 16 volumes long at this point. So, yeah, there is a lot of content uh, they can go through. Um, I, I don't know how much the series intends to adapt, 
but I wouldn't be worried, uh, you know, of, of like, them having to invent an original ending, uh, like, so later that, I mean, I, I just hope they don't, because, you know, if, even if this is announced to be a four-core series, who's to know they don't do a Black Clover and, uh, extend beyond that and just become a perpetual long-runner? But if you want more Atsushi Okubo, the Fire Force panel is not the only place you can find him, because he also has a live drawing panel on Thursday, July 4th, from 4.30 to 5.30 in Petrie Hall. And, you know, you'll get to see him, like, draw Soldier and Fire Force illustrations live. Yeah, you get, like, prizes, a paper Fire Force helmet, and a download code for a free digital Fire Force volume. So that's pretty interesting. And also, uh, Okubo has autograph sessions that you can go and get something signed from him at. Uh, his first autograph session is on Thursday, July 4th from 2.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Uh, and that's at autograph table one in Kentia Hall. Uh, then the second session is Friday, July 5th from 3.10 to 4.10 p.m. That's at uh, table five at Kentia Hall. Then Autograph Sessions 3 is Saturday, July 6th from 10.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. And that will be at Table 4 at Kentia Hall. But uh, just on related Kodansha Comics panel news, let's also just mention that, you know, they are once again going to have their official Sailor Moon manga panel uh, this year, Saturday, July 6th, 1.30 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. at uh, the Platinum Volume at the JW Marriott. And that will once again be attended by Fumio Asano, who is Naoko Takoji's editor on Sailor Moon. Uh, there's also going to be one of the starts of the new Sailor Moon Super Live show, which, you know, recently had its debut in the U.S. Uh, this past March. Uh, Kane Yumeimiya, who was Sailor Moon herself in that live show. So that's pretty cool as well. And, of course, uh, let's once again mention that Katsuhiro Otomo does have a panel this year where he's going to announce, like, his latest projects, his newest work, and that's Thursday, July 4th at 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. So far, I think that's, like, the only uh, announced appearance of Otomo at AX, but, so, if you really want to see Otomo, definitely attend that. But also, if you've been hoping to buy the Akira 35th Anniversary box set one last time, uh, that will be available at the Kagdantra Comics book uh, this year. So uh, apparently this is going to be your last chance to get the 35th Anniversary box set, because after this con, they are not going to be selling them again, apparently. But uh, as also, uh, just one last note is that the Kadansha Comics and Wordhole Comics manga panel, you know, just their general industry panel, that's Saturday, July 6th from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. So if you want to find out, like, older new licenses, events, all that stuff, definitely head on over there and, uh, you know, ch- check that out. And maybe they'll make some really cool announcements. Uh, we'll definitely report on those for the show as well. But, yeah, and of course, they also have a merchandise boot which has exclusive merchandise like Sailor Moon store items, Attack on Biden posters, sets, pop-on epic things, and, uh, you know, their usual manga samplers and all sorts of stuff. So definitely stop on over there for some cool uh, Kadensha comics-related merch as well. Um, We should probably also mention that they are going to be premiering Dr. Stone at Anime Expo, right? Oh, uh, yeah. We actually did mention that on a previous show, uh, that Dr. Stone would be premiering at Anime Expo. But yes, that will be happening on Thursday, July 4th at 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. at the uh, uh, main hall 
uh, Hall B of the LACC. So, yeah, if you want to see the premiere of Dr. Stone, uh, you know, with special guests, like, definitely head on over to that. Uh, I'm sure that'll be something people are really excited for. Uh, and, I mean, as far as events on the same day, like, I'm going to tell you guys right now, just as because... Uh, you know, I, I if you are interested in this, I gotta warn you right now. It seems like the big event this year is really gonna be the uh, Mutual Strikes Back screening. That's been climbing the uh, the list on terms of like most popular things people are scheduling as something they want to see at AX on the app. By the time you listen to this, it's probably gonna be the most popular event the most the thing that the most people want to see have have on schedule as something that they want to attend and i'm going to tell you right now that mha2 heroes was that for ax last year <laughs> and uh i said we severely underestimated because like not everyone uses the app so if you if, if something is so highly popular on the app it's being put on people's schedules in the app. Expect that the actual interest in it is multiple times that. So the, the Hall B of the LICC, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't think it, it holds, uh, it'll, it'll have enough space for everyone who is interested in this. Uh, so, you know, if that is the big event you want to go to, I gotta tell you right now, you've gotta line up early for Mewtwo Strikes Back. You know, I have, industry i mean i have press and so uh i'm hoping that you know i'll be able to get in easily uh so yeah i mean that's i think the big event to look out for at ax this year as something that if you really want to go to that you gotta you know you gotta uh line up early for that and mha too like mha was relatively recently added to the app but i also think that's gonna be like if that's going to rival Pokemon in terms of like how many people want to see it, how many people are going to be in that line trying to get into that room. So again, you got to line up early or you got to plan accordingly if you really want to get into those. But yeah, that's AX, that's the X experience. There are again, hundreds of thousands of people there. I don't think they fit more than a thousand people at most, uh, you know, and that's the big one. So uh, you definitely got to plan if you want to, if, if there's something you really want to get into. Yeah, definitely take it from uh, from some somebody who has been to Anime Expo before. So, uh, yeah, I speak from experience and from the crushing disappointment of not getting the two heroes last year. <laughs> I don't want to repeat that again this year, especially not for the sheer event of Mewtwo Strikes Back premiering with Japanese audio with Rika Matsumoto in attendance. That's that's an event. That's something I never taught in the wildest imagination what happened uh i i so uh, yeah that's my that is my big event that i like have to get into this year like especially since i i luck i uh unfortunately am not i didn't get a ticket for conan so i'm not going to be able to see that but oh. uh wheelord will tell me all about it because he he's the only one in our group who got the ticket <laughs> so i guess uh sakaki jekka and i are gonna kind of just hang out while he's at that and then he can tell us uh how it was afterwards oh that's that that's a shame i'm I'm sorry to hear that <laughs> i mean at, at least at least v lord will get to go yeah i'm glad at least one of us will get to go and you know v lord uh he he is the most uh, I, we all love conan but like v lord has 
seen and read all of Conan. He is by far the most passionate, knowledgeable uh, fan, spent the most time with this series. So, uh, you know, if it was anyone, I'm glad it's him. Maybe Doc and I will have to steal him for an episode of One Podcast for Bales. <laughs> I mean, you really should. He, like, again, especially for any Heiji episodes. I'm sure he'd love to talk about his best boy for hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so I guess is that about it for any Anime Expo stuff we want to talk about? Or Yeah, I think that's about it for AX stuff. But on the subject of Dr. Stone, if you're not going to be at AX, uh, you still might get to see at least some of it a little bit early. Oh, yeah. So it's it was officially announced on the Dr. Stone anime website, essentially, that the first 12 minutes of the first episode will be officially streaming on YouTube this July 1st at 7 p.m. Uh, Japanese Standard Time. It will be streaming on YouTube. Uh, and apparently the stream will also feature a little talk event featuring uh, both the actors for Senku and Taiju in particular, that being uh, Yusuke Kobayashi and Makoto Furukawa. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want a sneak peek of Dr. Stone, even before AX, uh, I mean, this is it. Uh, otherwise, uh, you'll have to wait for the anime to premiere on July 5th on Crunchyroll. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, I, they're really pulling out all the stops for Dr. Stone, which really just makes me happy <laughs> honestly yeah i'm i'm personally like i i think either today or yesterday like a, another trailer for the anime came out and man i really want to see this um i'm definitely going to be trying to um uh, i'm definitely going to try to catch the uh catch the stream of this if i can um uh you know uh, i mean for for anyone who wants to try and catch this when it's posted um I, your best bet would, would probably be to follow the official Dr. Stone anime Twitter uh, at Stone underscore anime underscore off, uh, off standing for official. Um, or, you know, you could also follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks. I'm sure one of us, if we if we see the if we if we see the tweet, we'll probably retweet it. Those are probably your best chances to, you know, kind of keep an eye out for when the stream is posted. Um, again, I'm. I cannot overstate how excited I am to see Dr. Stone animated. Uh, it's, I mean, b b between this, Fire Force, and, and Astro Lost in Space, uh, this anime season is going to be sick. <laughs> Which I guess we should just get into Astro Lost in Space, actually, because, um, so the first episode of the anime for Astro in particular is going to be premiering on July 3rd, and is apparently going to kick off with a one-hour special and I think that's about all the info we have on that. I, I can only assume this is going to be, like, an hour of actual, like, story material, at least. I mean, I can't really imagine what else it would be. I mean, yeah, I mean, this one-hour special is just going to be, like, I guess two episodes of the show. So I imagine it'll be, like, a lot of the first volume in this, like, one-hour special. I don't know how long the show is supposed to run, but... I'm, I imagine that it's going to have to move at a pretty brisk pace to, to adapt all of it if it's going to just be a one core. I really, I really hope it's at least two because, like, it is a short series, but, like, it's also really dense, too. Yeah, it definitely could benefit from being two core. I think, like, it's kind of a shame it has to fit into, like, it's either 13 or 26 or 12 or 24 when it could, you know, I think the perfect uh space for it would be somewhere in the middle but like you know that's how anime is produced but you know uh, well i think that first 
uh, hour special. It'll cover a fair amount of ground, I think. But pro- hopefully not the entire first volume. Hopefully it's not going to blast through these series. But yeah, I am just in general excited that, you know, uh, when the show premieres, it's going to like uh, have this one hour special to look forward to. And I'll definitely like be really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I'm wondering is because I do, if if Crunchyroll has the rights to simulcast this, they haven't announced it yet. Um, I, I I've seen mention of it being available on Amazon Prime Video, which I I don't know if that means if, if it's an Amazon exclusive or I don't know. I'm I mean I mean I guess I I, I guess I technically have a Prime subscription now, so I guess I actually I would actually have access to it. Um, but I, I hope for like everyone else's sake that maybe it's on something else a little more accessible. Cause like, I don't know, like Astro Lost in Space, I, I don't, I don't want to say like, cause I'm sure the manga did all right, but like, I really, I really think that having a really easily accessible anime adaptation over here would really help the sales of it, uh, of the English release in particular. Yeah, I do think so as well. In general, I just want more people to see and experience that story because it's such a good series. Because, like, I, I honestly didn't expect Astra to get an anime in the first place. Yeah, especially after it ended. You know, it is very surprising. But, uh, yeah, I'm I'm hoping it's somewhere a little more accessible. Um, but... Other than that, I'm also just hoping it's it's good. I mean, the from 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 the trailers we've gotten, it looks it it looks pretty good. Um, I mean, I it's it's also not the kind of series I expect to have like really really lavish animation or anything. But like, I'm sure the character animation at least will be pretty good. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but no, I'm again i'm i'm just i'm really looking forward to this season of anime in 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 general like i'm i i actually have i'm actually looking to i'm looking forward to more than one show to watch a week most likely there's actually quite a bit in the summer i'm looking forward to like vinland saga oh yeah vinland saga shit i forgot about that <laughs> looks like it's going to be a great adaptation so as a fan of the manga i'm really happy about that so yeah i mean there's just a lot of really great shows i think are going to be out but uh man i think we kind of messed up in terms of arranging news pieces because transitioning from the dr stone news to the caleb interview would have been so perfect but (laughs) uh, regardless science is oftentimes imperfect and it's okay to mess up because that's how you learn and you grow and people evolve nice save and i think that caleb uh will go into a lot of his experiences and how that helped him grow as a person and uh, evolve into the super-powered translator of Shonen Jump hits he is today. So get excited, uh, get ready, and let's jump right into our Caleb Cook interview. everybody because today we are conducting an interview with translator extraordinaire Caleb Cook who you may know as a translator of my hero academia Dr. Stone Dragon Ball Super and a ton of other plus ultra series Caleb thank you for joining us 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here with you guys. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of things we want to ask you because you've had a really interesting career journey in terms of where you started out and then where you are now. And I'm really excited to learn more about it. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. We can start at the beginning, I guess. Um, so, um, let me think. I guess my very first sort of encounter with, um, okay, not quite manga or anime, but, uh, it was Totoro, the movie, uh, My Neighbor Totoro. Mm. I was probably, um, I was maybe five or six, and I found the, the VHS tape of that in the public library. And I just rented that so many times. Love that movie. And at the time, like, I don't know, when you're, when you're like five years old, you, you don't really have a, a concept of the world, of other countries, like what is Japan even? So I, I definitely didn't like, hadn't made that connection at that point that like, oh, this is, you know, a cultural import that's been translated and localized and all that. And, uh, e even with like Pokemon, which I think started when I was, uh, nine, the anime for Pokemon, even at that point, it was still like, it, it hadn't fully clicked, like, oh, this is from Japan, you know, when, when they yeah. did the, uh, the onigiri into jelly donuts thing. Like, of course, <laughs> yeah. I was like, hmm, some, something's not right here, but. <laughs> to a young kid's eye, the edits that four kids made into those series weren't that noticeable. But as you grow older, you can say, yeah, exactly. whoa, they uh, edited out a rice ball and turned it into a sandwich. That right, isn't right. digitally painted on and totally noticeable at all. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in later seasons, they put an actual effort to digitally paint it out. Like uh -huh. in a, in Advanced <laughs> Battle, there's this character called... Uh, his Japanese name is Masamune. I forget his English name. But basically, mm. this character, he, he is introduced by the fact that he has lost his onigiri and it's rolling down this hill and it crashes into ash. And in the four kids version, as I mentioned before, they change that into a sandwich. And sandwich. you gotta wonder, wow. how does this sandwich not fall apart as it's rolling down this hill? <laughs> how has it not just opened up and all the content splattered outside? And that's wow. when my uh, young self was like, hey, this seems kind of off here, Pokemon. <laughs> but what was the first, like, manga anime that you really recognized it as mm. from Japan? So, yeah, I guess that would have been around the time of uh, Toonami on Cartoon Network uh, when they had their sort of classic killer lineup of, like, DBZ, Sailor Moon, uh, Kenshin, Yu Yu Hakusho. Definitely at that point, I was like, oh yeah, these are these are cartoons from Japan, like, and, and this stuff's kind of cool. <laughs> and, you know, I, I watched all those shows religiously, the ones that they uh, they aired on American TV. And it was the whole deal where, like, every time they would get to the end of a saga in DVZ, you would just, like, pray that they had the next season ready. But then time and time again, they wouldn't. And it would just be like, oh, we're seeing the Cell Saga again because they haven't done Boo yet. <laughs> and they would just <laughs> loop back. <laughs> they really know how to sell those reruns, though. Yes, I yes, they remember, did. <laughs> like, uh, they made a lot of good promos, like, see the saga that changed it all. Trucks, <laughs> Super Saiyan, Cell. Uh, they really know how to hype up reruns. No, it was, it was effective, yeah. Got me. <laughs> <laughs> but then going on from there, like, how did you get into manga? Hmm. So, yeah, I guess it, maybe it was around the same time, um... 
I noticed that uh, Viz actually was was putting out their physical edition of Shonen Jump in uh, you know in magazine form, like in, in super, supermarkets and shops, and that kind of caught my eye. Um, that was when I first saw One Piece, which which was huge. And I didn't really like it at first, like the art was <laughs> very off-putting. But um, needless to say, like a few years later, I, I became a huge fan of One Piece and got really into that, you know, like with online communities and everything. But um, also, no, it, it was actually One Piece actually played a role in um, in me learning Japanese because in college I started collecting the the Japanese uh, volumes, Tankobon, and reading them in, in the original Japanese while learning Japanese and writing down every new vocabulary word that I found just as a, as a way of learning more of the language. So that was fun and very informative. <laughs> That's awesome. So One Piece was a huge inspiration for you to start learning the language, the Japanese. And then is that hmm. another reason why you decided to take Japanese classes at college? Um, I mean, maybe not One Piece specifically, but just, yeah, in general, anime, manga, and video games especially. Mm. I sort of thought, uh, you know, maybe it'd be nice to experience this media in, uh, in the original form. It, it, was, it was really just kind of on a whim. You know, I before going to college, enough people in my life had sort of told me that, you know, oh, if you're doing a four-year degree, don't, like, rush in picking a major or anything. Try different things. See what you like, because you never know. Um, and that paid off in a big way, because sort of on a whim, you know, I took Japanese, and that got me to where I am now. You know, I had no idea of that at the time. I didn't... It wasn't, like, a clear-cut plan to go into translation or anything at the time. Wow. So you just took Japanese to like really just well, appreciate video games, manga, just in the original form, and didn't have any desire to be. Oh, I'm going to work in the manga industry as this amazing translator of hit series. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, I did did not have that vision at the time. Um, yeah, no, it was it was it was really just on a whim, you know. Like I took Japanese class, I took some like linguistics classes, I took some interesting science classes here and there. It was just, just sort of messing around um, to see what I found interesting. And uh, the Japanese turned out to be a, a big part of my life. That's awesome. And it's crazy because you went to college. I read on your website that, you know, you went there to study business finance, work on Wall Street. And like, what was the point where you decided, oh, no, this is not for me. And you really started to become more interested in Japanese culture and then, like, joined the mm -hmm. JET program. Yeah. So um, in high school, my sort of best subject, my favorite subject, was always math. So going into college, even, I sort of had this stubborn assumption that whatever I did in life should probably involve math somehow. Like, it just made sense. But also making obscene amounts of money seemed like a cool idea at age 18. So I thought, well, okay, what can you do with math that makes you a lot of money? Wall Street, there's this uh, there's a profession that's not just like the normal traders on Wall Street, but they're called quants. And they're the ones who make the, the algorithms for the instantaneous mm -hmm. machine trading. And they're sort of not like the, like the jocks in the front room. They're in the back office, like, you know, plugging away at the computer, but still making ridiculous money. So that was that was sort of my stupid juvenile vision of of what I wanted to do um at the time. But as it happened, Dartmouth is 
a very, very conservative and very fratty college. You know, there's lots of lots of legacy students, and lots of old money, mm. just like really, really shitty people. I'm not sorry to say. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. And, and no, and there's like a huge, right. Okay. So the huge frat scene, huge party scene, lots of binge drinking, a lot of sexual assault. So all of this, you know, over four years there, I'm just like, uh, this is like disgusting. And what do a disproportionate number of those like terrible men decide to do? They major in economics and become investment bankers. So observing all that over a few years sort of made it clear to me that I didn't have what it took to join that world, or I definitely would not enjoy it. Like at the career fairs where the, the people from Wall Street would show up and the, the students would go in their, in their finest suits. They'd, you know, wipe the vomit off themselves from the night before and go and <laughs> shake hands and, and schmooze with their, their future employers. And like, I tried one of those once. I was like, nah, nah, I'm not doing this. <laughs> But luckily, you know, I had been taking the Japanese classes, so even though my major was still economics, I had the Japanese as a fallback, and that was my minor. And I had done all of the, the language classes available, and a few, uh, a few culture classes, a few literature classes. And so, yeah, that, that just made that even, even more valuable, because my original plan, like, sort of, I realized that was not, not for me. <laughs> and that, that's what led me, in the end, to apply for the, the JET program. Um, right after college mm -hmm. you just want to be yeah. far away from that world as possible you just have to go halfway yeah. across the world exactly exactly yeah it <laughs> sounds like a real awful experience yeah. your time there yeah i mean yeah dormant was not a good fit for me but i'm still grateful that they had such a great japanese program with like great great professors and uh of course my, my classmates in those classes were also very cool people because we like automatically had that in common that we were into, for the most part, like the pop culture. And, uh, so there was like the study abroad during the summer where I met my, um, my host family in Japan, lived with them for like three months. And they're, they're like still a part of my life. We, we exchange Christmas cards, you know, I know all their grandkids, you know, I send them presents at Christmas. And so, yeah, a lot, a lot of, a lot of good did come out of it. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. You made lasting friendships and connections. Exactly. That's a, that's a rare thing. <laughs> but yeah, no. That, yeah, I did. That it was it was it was a good thing, for sure. And was your study abroad in college one of the reasons that you thought, hey, I, I'd like to do the jet program and stay in Japan for a longer term? Uh, yes, actually. So with jet, yeah, sort of like the ulterior motive was to have like sort of a stay of execution from the real world, you know. <laughs> After college, it's like, oh, no, what am I going to do with my life? It's like, oh, I'll just put off that decision for a few years because JET is a maximum of five years. You can do it mm. one, two, three, four, or five. And But, yeah, my, my, my great experience with the study abroad did, to a large extent, inspire that. It made me think, like, oh, maybe I could live in Japan in the long term. Maybe, like, you know, find a wife or something. A lot of, a lot of white guys do that. But, um... As it, as it happened, that was that was not my experience. On the uh, on the jet application, they ask you if you want urban, suburban, or rural, and you're not guaranteed what your choice. But if you put rural, you pretty much are because nobody puts rural. <laughs> and like a moron, I put rural because, and I cannot emphasize this enough. I was literally picturing like a Ghibli esque area, like in Totoro, basically. <laughs> 
like you know I, I had those images in mind just the beautiful countryside and the friendly locals and like you can ride your bike down the little dirt paths and find hidden shrine like yeah the whole thing and that was obviously idiotic <laughs> did not think about what the weather would be like <laughs> <laughs> right that's that is a big point that happened um they put me in this tiny mountain town in uh, miyagi prefecture which uh for for listeners who don't know the geography of japan it's three prefectures from the top of the main island so pretty far north and yeah the area i was i, w I would describe it as like brutalist farmland just flat and like nothing going on kind of gray but not a lot of uh, young people, people around your age. Correct. Yeah. It was um, basically, I mean, yeah, and I'm not like blaming the town for this, but it was the sort of place where, you know, the kids go to school and then when they hit college age, they either get the hell out of Dodge to go to college <laughs> and like find a more exciting life or they settle down immediately and start, start their families. So yeah, there was no, there was no real population of like, you know, 20 somethings, 30 somethings who weren't just already starting families. Um, and again, I'm not, like, blaming the people for that. It, it just didn't make for a very, like, exciting place to be in the end. But you say that, but you wrote about some uh, very interesting stories that you have up on your website. And I read through them, and I'm like, wow, you got into some some interesting uh, <laughs> scenarios there like uh when you accidentally yeah. scraped a car with your bike and you got grifted by a uh, police and yep. car salesman and then yep. when your pipes froze in the winter and you had to bring a heater to like the bathroom to defrost the pipes uh, half an hour before you wanted yep. to take a shower <laughs> and I, I really love the story where you like became friends with like that salesman guy uh yes. who was at the yes. senior store and he's like selling like some massage thing to elderly people and then you just kind of <laughs> you know became friends with him bonded over like your love of manga one piece and i love how the story ends where it's like you know you told him oh i'm not gonna ever buy this and he was like that's all right caleb i wouldn't really recommend it anyway yes yes <laughs> that that was quite an experience um yeah well, thank you for reading that writing, by the way. <laughs> oh, I loved it. Uh, you're an incredible writer. Like, you write some really... Your storytelling's really great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to, to continue that sort of writing basically since starting this career, but if I ever uh, if I ever get a chance, I, I would like to write some more little stories like that. Because, um, yeah, and, and, and right, as you're, as you're sort of suggesting, those, those, I guess those were the highlights of my time there. <laughs> sort of like the... the, the extra weird and like funny incidents amidst all the sort of nothing and boredom <laughs> the rest of the time <laughs> and the cold yeah the cold the yeah. cold was bad uh worse than uh winterfell and game of thrones <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> a long winter uh, two-thirds of the year yeah pretty much like yeah no the i think i have a, I have a picture somewhere um of the trees in front of my apartment where I lived in Japan, and they, they were cherry, cherry blossom trees, and they were blooming. But in the, in the picture, there's like a blizzard coming down on the cherry blossoms. It's just like, oh, no, no, no. That's how you know if this is like, this place is not meant for human habitation. But I'm curious of your experience as a teacher there, you know, as an English teacher, like what were mm -hmm. your students like, what were some of your classes like? 
And then, like, yeah. interacting with the students, like, help reinforce your own Japanese language skills? Sure. So, um, the students, they, I mean, they were the sons and daughters of rice farmers. <laughs> so they had pretty mm -hmm. much zero interest in English, of course. But, you know, that, that's probably not dissimilar from kids in the U.S. who, like, don't really give a crap about learning French or Spanish or whatever. Um, so I don't, yeah. again, I don't blame them for that. But the, the kids were actually the best part of the job, the best part of living there, um, because, I don't know, being a rural area, the adults were kind of unfriendly and dismissive of, like, foreigners. Um, but the kids, mm. the kids were, like, you know, a little more innocent and would, like, treat me like a human being, which was, that was nice. Mm. And, you know, they would run up to me in the hall and, like, ask me to say dirty words in English. That was, that, that was <laughs> of course, their kids. Uh, what kind of things? <laughs> Oh. oh, nothing I can repeat on this part. No, I don't, you know, like, sexual terms, and, and then uh, they taught me the equivalents in, uh, in Japanese, of course, which I have made <laughs> use of in, in my career. I have had no, to know those words a few times. But yeah, no, the, the kids were great, and the classes that I taught them, you know, again, they weren't really that interested, but at least the, like, the worksheets that I made for, for English class, um, I was always sure to, like, throw in some off-brand humor and anime references in, so... If that got like a chuckle or two, that was that was like a good day. <laughs> what were some anime and manga that were popular among the students? Oh man, I mean, pretty much the big ones. Uh, One Piece and I think Naruto was still going at the time in 2011. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, nothing, nothing like super obscure. They they were into the the big the big shonen all the shonen jump series. Um, Basically. Do you ever take time out of class just to talk to the students about the new One Piece chapter and speculate what's going to happen next? Uh, usually not in class, but I did sit with them every day at lunch. Mm. So that that was where those sorts of conversations happened, or like, or literally anything you know, talking about video games or TV shows or whatever. Now that yeah, that was fun too. I got to eat the same school lunch as them, which uh, were they good? The lunches? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was always way too much. Which I, my theory is that these kids, that the, the sports clubs that they participate in, I don't know if like you have any conception of how intense it is based on like manga, <laughs> but it really mm. is that intense. They, they train like, you know, four hours a day, like six days a week. So my theory is that these school, school lunches were so full of calories just for that, <laughs> basically. What were some of the kinds of lunches? Like, what did they put in these meals? Yeah, no, it was it was really good stuff. There would always be well, it was always a bowl of rice, big ass bowl of rice. It was usually a soup, either miso soup or like a creamy soup. Even those those were the good days, the creamy soups. Mm. And then for the main dishes, there was a lot of fish, a lot of like grilled fish, which was delicious. There was um, sometimes like a plate of pasta, which was sort of weird when you have, when you have, when you have a bowl of rice and like a cream soup and then pot. It's like oh my god, it's like a bit much, <laughs> but. Yeah, no, no, the food, the food was consistently good. That was another highlight of the experience. <laughs> it's not lacking there. Um, nice. Yeah. One benefit of being in a uh, farmer's village. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. They got the rice right there. It's it's not traveling far. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds really awesome. And so you were there in Miyagi for about two years. Yep. Then you decide to come back to the U.S. Yes. Why did you decide to, so the JET program, you could be there for up to five years. So was there a particular reason that you decided that after two years you'd like to go back? Yeah, so, I mean, I knew pretty, 
pretty early into my second year there that I was not going to do more jet just because frankly I was I was kind of miserable a little like a little suicidal um oh and I I don't I I'm, that's not an exaggeration like it, it was bad it was just a combination of like the the cold and the loneliness and just not not feel I don't know it, it's it's hard to put my finger I don't on know. yeah I don't know yeah I look I look back on it as as a mixed experience in the sense that like I'm pretty confident I could live anywhere where it's cold now like okay I've done that I've survived hmm. and yeah no I, I it, it the the whole the two years it, it taught me a lot about myself about what I need out of life um I think I I used to be a lot more antisocial and then I went to Japan where it was like there's literally nobody here and it was like oh maybe maybe I should be more social in life or I'll want to kill myself like <laughs> But um no that's that's not entirely correct. There were a few other jets in the area and I, mm. I did actually make some some good friends for life and they're they're really what got me through the time. Uh one of them, my my neighbor actually was this guy named Stefan, who actually is now translating Jujutsu Kaisen. Oh. I helped uh, introduce it. I visited the Viz office years later because I was on a road trip with him and um Viz said, Oh yeah, bring your friend by by too like that's fine and so that's how he like got his foot in the door and uh and he he ended up getting some work there too so that that was cool. But um yeah no Stefan really really got me through those years. Uh, we we also bonded over one piece right at the start and <laughs> we're just you know there for each other like when the whole rest of the world is like kind of brutal. Yeah. That's awesome. And now both of you are working on big series in Shonen Jump. Yeah, yeah we 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 couldn't have imagined it at the time. I'll <laughs> say that. But yeah, sorry, back back to your question. Yeah, so no, I was not going to do more JET, needless to say. The plan actually was I was going to, or I applied to, and I got into uh, Waseda University in Tokyo. Mm. They had a uh, an MBA program, a bilingual MBA, where there'd be some classes in English, some in Japanese, sort of aimed at people who wanted to use their bilingualism in business, basically. And that still seemed like a good idea at the time to me. But the thing was, when I went down to Tokyo to find an apartment to rent for that program, because it was going to start right after Jet ended, I couldn't find an apartment. All the all the landlords said, no foreigners allowed. What? Or some of them said, oh, foreigners are allowed, except you have to buy this extra insurance because you're a foreigner, or you have to give double the deposit money because you're a foreigner. And so yeah. after the these two sort of brutal years, and then... I encountered this, I was just like, no, that's it. I'm done. Fuck this forever. <laughs> and, wow. you know, I didn't have any prospects back in the U.S. Like, I didn't know what, what I was going to do. I didn't have a job lined up or anything. But I said, you know what? For my, my own, like, mental health, I need to get out of here. And, yeah, I did. And, and, you know, I still love a lot of aspects of Japan. I still plan to visit many times throughout my life. But, yeah, that just, the whole experience sort of taught me that I could I could never actually live there. It's, um... Very xenophobic to immigrants. Yeah. And, and you know, who knows? I, it's just my experience. I'm not going to ever speak for everyone. Maybe it's gotten better in a few years since. But for me, yeah, maybe I'm a little too sensitive for, for that sort of uh, environment, I guess. Yeah, the society, yeah, it's just, it feels like in a lot of ways it's just not equipped for for outsiders. Like, you're always going to feel like an outsider. And um, for some people, that's okay. You know, if you, if, you can go there and find your own happiness, like start a family or whatever. Like maybe, maybe that's that's good enough for a lot of people. And I'm not I'm not going to judge them, but 
for me, yeah, no, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you came back home and you, you had people to kind of talk to and like, you know, it's just probably good to be back with family again after kind of feeling like alone in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it was definitely um the people and also and also the food. Like I think I had like pizza for a week. <laughs> it's <was> just like <laughs> give me that New York pizza, please. <laughs> yeah. Probably a lot cheaper in New York than uh, in Japan, right? Oh yeah. A lot pricier. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm curious. You came back to America. What happened from there? What was your first experience translating manga? How did you end up becoming a manga translator? Sure. So, um, actually, my, my very, very first translation of anything at all was a chapter of, uh, do you know Blackjack from uh, Osama yeah, Tezuka? Yeah, Osama Tezuka. Yeah, 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 the original. Um, this was not professionally. <laughs> this was during my study abroad with that host family. My host father, he's he's a very interesting character, um, sort of offbeat. One day he just, out of the blue, handed me a volume of Blackjack, and he said, translate this one chapter for fun. It was like a homework, like an extra homework assignment. I was like, okay, <laughs> that sounds fun. What was the chapter? Oh, what was it? I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the details. It was like this old lady, and she was sick. She was like a mother to an adult son. And he made her feel better. Yeah, no, and the lesson was something, or like Blackjack like told the son, like, yeah, I can cure your mother, but it's going to cost you like 200 million yen. And like, I don't know, it was like a, to teach him a lesson about the value of his mother. I, I, yeah. I, I don't know. Blackjack always had to deal with a lot of assholes that he had to like kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, as a money grubbing as Blackjack was, like his heart was always in the right place. So he always had like a moral lesson to teach, like whenever he had to. You know, exactly. Deal with people like that. Like, uh, very first Blackjack chapter is like this mm. guy, so he killed some other guy so that, like, he could transplant, like, his, his son's brain into him. But instead, oh. Blackjack saved the guy he tried to kill instead of his son. Cause he was right. like, no, that's, that's not right. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> a lot of Blackjack stories are very morally driven, very interesting. But yeah, that's no, really no. cool. Yeah. And I, I actually, um, I actually, I ended up redrawing the chapter by hand um, for this exercise, just again for fun, and then writing in the English dialogue because I wasn't like working with a lettering program or anything. So I still, I still have that somewhere. It's, it's like this little sort of paper booklet of this one, really the first thing I ever translated, which is kind of neat. Yeah. But uh, no, for for the the professional side. Um, so after after getting back from Japan in August of 2013, that was when I said, "Fuck it, I'm out." I got back, I was back at home, literally in my mother's house, and sort of, you know, I got like a job at a SAT tutor agency, just to make some money in the meantime, but that year, December 2013, we I was eating dinner with some family friends who actually worked at Hachette, which is a, a publisher in New York City, that used to be the parent company of Yen Press. They're, they're not anymore, I think Yen Press is independent now. It's not, it's no longer an imprint of Hachette, but at the time it was, and I was sort of at this dinner, I was saying to the family friends, like, oh, you know, yeah, I'm looking for a job that can use Japanese somehow. And they said, hey, our company has an imprint that does manga. Why don't you try to get some translation work? I was like, okay. So they introduced me to an editor there. I took the translation test. 
passed, and that was when they gave me my, my first ever series, which was High School DXD, actually, um, sort of a softcore, you know, booby manga. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that was the start of it. So a few months after starting work with the End Press, um, I got some work from Udon, actually through, uh, sorry, this is like sort of a tangent, a few years before this, mm-hmm. rewind, Udon was putting out a art book for Mega Man. It was a, a Mega Man tribute book filled with fan art from the fans. So they they solicited fans to submit their artwork, and at the time I did, I, I sent them some some photos of my uh, my sculptures. I did had some Mega Man sculptures, and luckily I, I I got in. They liked my art enough. They gave me a, a page in that book. So a few years later, when I came back and I wanted translation work, I already I already had that contact at Udon. So I emailed them. I said, hey, you know, remember me? I had some Mega Man art, but now I translate. Can I do anything for you guys? And yeah, they, they ever since then, I've been doing um, art books and manga for Udon. That's awesome. Yeah. So that was kind of cool that the, the art led to that. Not even indirectly, like directly, actually. If not for that. Um, and then with this... I was introduced to someone at Viz via Stephen Paul, actually, the translator of One Piece, mm-hmm. through through Arlong Park forums. I knew him, One Piece buddies. And, mm-hmm. yeah, he gave my name to somebody there, and I think at the time it was like I didn't hear anything for like six months, because that's just how it is sometimes. They don't, they don't need new people all the time. But at one point, yeah, I got an email from Viz, the people at Viz, Started doing the jump starts for them, which uh, for for the real youngsters out there, jump starts were what they used to do with new series, um, where they'd run the first three chapters. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe that was almost five years ago now. But like, what yeah. were some of your first jump starts that you worked on? Because like that would have been around the beginning, so you'd be working on stuff like, did you work on judos and uh, yep. e robot? I, literally both of those. Yep. Um, <laughs> Judos, Judos was my first one. Um, sorry, I'm looking up in my, uh, where is it? Jumpstarts here, my folders. I, wanna say, I don't even remember. Yeah, Judos, E-Robot. Um, oh, El, Eld Live? Eld Arrive? Yeah, Eld Live. Uh, Kiramano series. Yeah, I'm not doing that one now. I didn't keep doing that one, but I did the first three chapters. Um, mm. Mono no Fu, there, that was the, the Shogi one. Oh, I, I, I did Kimetsu no Yaiba, the first three chapters of that, but. This didn't keep doing that immediately, so no, nobody did Chapter Four at the time. Oh yeah, and then and then Doctor Stone was actually a, a jump start too, initially. Mm-hmm. That amazingly enough made it, <laughs> which was really cool. But as far as the timeline goes, you started with like judos and Alive and Eat Robot, and that would have mm-hmm. been in the fall of 2014, and then in early 2015, around February, that's when MHA started. Right. That sounds about right. So yeah, it's. It, I mean, it definitely wasn't instant. It wasn't like you know, did a little stuff here and there, and then they're like, oh, here's my Hero Academia. It was yeah, like a year and a half into my career, I guess, which is still very early. But I think at the time, nobody really had an idea how big it would get. That one in particular. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. that's just my imposter syndrome talking. That like, I'm sort of like, why? Why on earth would they give this to me? <laughs> Like, what, what do I know? What am I doing? And now it's like this huge series. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Because, yeah, I don't think Viz really recognized that it, it would become the big hit that it has. Because, you know, they waited 
like 29 chapters before they, you know, started running it. But exactly. like, I think immediately mm -hmm. it just picked up and became just this incredibly huge thing that mm -hmm. everyone was talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it just exploded with the anime, of course. Yeah, now when we look at the book scan list, half the list every month is MHA volumes. Like, yeah. it yep. is the best-selling comic in America right now. It's yep. crazy. It's, uh, you know, it's no pressure, really. No, um, <laughs> no it's, it's, it's horrifying. I don't know. It's, no, it's, it's, it's very scary. <laughs> it, well, it definitely, no, it feels like, I don't know, it, it lends definitely some terror, but a much bigger sense of responsibility in the sense that I know how big the fan base is and that potentially every word, every word choice I make in every line could potentially be scrutinized by mm. these fucking insane fans on no i'm sorry they're they're great we love them <laughs> they're beautiful people but um i mean you were there at a san diego comic-con last year i'm sure you i don't know if yeah. you were around to see the whiz boot get swamped by legions of fans trying to get autograph tickets but yep i was there <laughs> i took pictures of the crowd i did not join the crowd it was horrible <laughs> the, the, the police san diego police actually came by and threatened to shut down the convention because it was like a fire hazard to have so many people like in one spot it was it was insane mm. yeah they were idiots about that and that, that wasn't obvious that was the convention that was sdcc they um they did they just stuck stuck him in like one of the sort of medium-sized rooms when really he needed like the biggest hall they had <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, you'd think that they would see Anime Expo just a couple of weeks earlier and the insane turnout for the MHA Two Heroes premiere and like, hey, this uh, My Hero thing, I think it's <laughs> going to be pretty big. We should probably promote it as one of the big events at SDCC and not yeah. just uh, keep it in the manga ghetto. Exactly. It's not Star Wars. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but back on the subject of fans... Have you had any unpleasant interactions with the fan base, particularly with those who evangelize scans and shun the official release? Yeah, and I, I have um I have people on Twitter actually who DM me and say like, "Hey, I read the scanlation and it was written differently there." And first of all, I'm like, "Oh my god, like fuck you, like get out of my mansions." That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an instant ban, instant mute. No, I mean, I don't think it's gotten that nearly that bad to that point. Um, I don't, I don't have, I don't have open DMs anymore <laughs> for what it's worth. But no, in, in in a way, I don't mind that kind of thing. Like the 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 good side to it is okay. Maybe if somebody points out something legitimate, like I I will go check and like, oh no, like maybe this was wrong, <laughs> and then we can fix it for the the volume release. Like so that 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 can happen, of course. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say the tricky thing there is. And maybe this is a good opportunity to tell everybody this. I can't. A translator cannot publicly admit on like social media, like, "Oh yeah, I did this wrong. This is wrong. We got this line wrong. We're gonna fix it." That's mm. just like that's like taboo. That's you know you could get in trouble with the publishers for that because from their perspective, it's like how can they ask people to spend money on the product if the translator's out there like, "Oh yeah, I got this wrong." So my my default position on that, whether it happens or not. And I'm not saying it does, but um, 
is that I, I just have to say no comment. Like I can't, I can't answer those questions. I can, I can look at what you're saying, but otherwise mm-hmm. it has to, has to happen behind the scenes. Well, I think your translation work has been fantastic. And while I haven't read the original Japanese versions, I think your translations for MHA and Dr. Stone in particular have both had a strong voice and great word choices that really carry over their author's original intent and bring out the heart of those series. Thank you. I have a lot of love for those series, so. Not that I don't make an effort on other series, but no. (laughs) Those two are, are good ones, yeah. And I think it really shows with your trivia treads for both series that you've done on Twitter, where you, you know, really break down, like, cultural notes, translation notes in each chapter. And so, like, what was the impetus for you to start doing them and keep them going for so long? Yeah, so, sort of as you alluded to, um, the, the trivia idea in the first place was sparked by, uh, actually, the margin notes that I put in my scripts that I submit. They're always, my scripts are always filled with lots of little, like, red liner notes for the editors about, you know, word choices I make or how I'm interpreting a certain scene. And at some point it occurred to me that readers might be interested in that kind of thing. And yeah, like, sort of in the, in the course of translating, I am engaging with these stories on a very zoomed-in micro level. So, like, of course there's, you know, greater thematic arcs and broad, uh, broad strokes going on, but when I'm doing the literal work of crafting sentences, I'm more looking at, like, the bare-bones details, so, like, characters' expressions, or details in the backgrounds, or, you know, because I have to translate the sound effects, too, so sometimes I have to say, like, okay, what on earth is making this sound, and why? Or why why they, why in the dialogue they might use one word over another? So, yeah, because it, it is visual storytelling at the end of the day. And I often find myself sort of zooming in on the art, literally, on, on a high-def, high-res PDF. <laughs> and mm-hmm. when I zoom in, you know, I, I find all these little details that I think in most cases the average reader is probably going to go right by. You know, you, you read through a page in like 10 seconds or whatever, and you're not, you're not scrutinizing every panel. So again, it, it occurred to me that some readers, you know, the, the big fans might be interested in these things um, in the form of these, these readers' companions. And, uh, yeah, you'll notice that, like, I don't know, in the, in the trivia, I don't do a lot of editorializing or soapboxing or, like, here's what I think. Like, once in a while, I'll be like, oh, yeah, Yayo Rose's best girl. But that that's not, like, the theme, <laughs> you know? It's it's more like the the, uh, the ten things you missed kind of list. Um, or, like, with Dr. Stone, you know, something about the science, just expanding on that and for those pe- people who are hungry for more. But, yeah, I imagine you also have to do a lot of research while you're translating to, like, look up maybe cultural context. And in the case of Dr. Stone, like, the science that is being explained in the series. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of science terminology for sure that, you know, especially, like, I don't, I don't even think I would know it in English if I saw it. So when I see it in Japanese, of course I have to, you know, research, like, what on earth is this word? Okay, I know what the word is now. What does it mean in context? Like, what is this all about? And how long does that research take usually? I've streamlined the process pretty much to the point that, you know, the Dr. Stone chapter doesn't take much longer than any other chapter. Maybe like an hour and a half at this point. It's pretty quick, depending. Yeah, no, I mean, it does get tricky sometimes. Some of the chapters are much worse than others, of course. Like, I don't know, during the war, like, those were just big action scenes. It's like, okay, this is easy. This is standard shonen 
stuff, but, um, I don't know, when they were, like, making, like, the cell phones and talking about, like, radio waves and electric coil, I was like, oh, okay, I don't know what's going on. A lot of complex stuff there. Yeah. But has there ever been times when you were, like, researching something mentioned in Dr. Stone, you found out, oh, this is actually not uh, that scientifically accurate? Oh, no, no, not to that extent. Um, The worst, quote-unquote, worst thing I ever found was a... Oh, it was when they were in the cave. They were trapped in the pit in the cave, and they needed to fill it up with water to escape. And mm -hmm. there was a panel where Senku was doing the calculations for how long it would take to fill up with water. And in the background, there's all these numbers, all the formulas. So it wasn't even it wasn't even like dialogue that needed to be translated and relettered. But um, I discovered there was a number there that the decimal point was off by one place. But beyond that, no, there was never anything like wrong. <laughs> That I found. Yeah, no, I feel like the 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 core science is is going to be solid because of um mostly because of the science consultants who work on it. Like they're, Inagaki is literally consulting these people and being like, is that like how how do I what is the process behind this? And then he just puts that in the story. Um, I guess mm -hmm. I could understand if people if if what people had a problem with was sort of the almost the scale of it, like. Like, that some of these things happen so quickly, or that it's like, well, actually in real life, like, you know, that, pro that like, chemical process would take, like, five hours to do, but they just show it in one panel. But that's sort of, like, I don't know, in my mind, that's a different yeah. issue. I mean, there's a lot of condensation of time in Dr. Stone. Like, something that we see happen in one chapter, like, in story, probably took several days to actually achieve, and we're right. kind of seeing in montage. Right. No, yeah. Or Or one thing that you might notice is, like, um... When they when they come up with some some new item, like a good example would be a wire, metal wire. Mm -hmm. So there was a scene initially when they're making the wire where they they gather like the, all the children of the village and are like, okay, children, like twist together this gold wire. We need like a million miles of it. And the kids are like, okay. And then they do that. And then you, of course we never we never see that happening again. They're gonna keep using wire for all the inventions, but. Of course, you know, he he admits it because why why would you show it again? Why you don't we don't need to see the children twisting together the wire again? So it would take uh, months to to get something done if we saw every so the process every time. Right. Or like the, the, a good example would be the ship that just happened. Yeah. Like they built they built the ship and they were like, oh, it's been a year and we built the ship. And it's like okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> like if we saw every step of that, it would take a year of chapters. In, in, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Just five volumes of shipbuilding. <laughs> exactly. Right, which I, I think is a testament to the author's skill as an author. You know, he knows at the end of the day he's making entertainment. It's not a manual. <laughs> mm -hmm. At the end of the day, this is going to, you know, I think they, they do expect that, to an extent, children are reading it. Or maybe not little children, but, you know, middle schoolers or whatever. So, so you, have to keep, you have to keep people's attention. <laughs> mm-hmm. But kind of along the same vein, like, have there ever been times mm -hmm. where, like, you were came across something, like, uh, on a series you were translating, and you were like, huh, I, I don't know what exactly this means, I don't really know what this term is, how to, how to translate this? Hmm. Uh, okay, so it's, like, two, kind of two questions. Um, yeah, there, there are times when something stumps me. Not, not too often. <laughs> But when when that happens, you know, I'll give it my best guess, and then, in in one of my little patented red margin notes, I'll just say to the editor, like, "Hey, I wasn't a hundred percent on this line. 
please like double check with somebody in the office or whatever before before you publish this um because again yeah i do have that sort of sense of responsibility i don't want to and i'm not so arrogant to be like oh yeah i know this set translation's 100 percent perfect every time just use what i have uh even if i'm not sure of it mm-hmm. and then to to the other part of the question are some things harder than others yeah standard shonen tends to be sort of like if, you, if you've seen 10 you've seen them all <laughs> at, at one point <laughs> You know, once you've done enough shonen series, you're even going to start to see the same dialogue over and over. It, it sort of becomes cliche. You know, every every story has its different little nuances and terminology, but like the core vocabulary being used, I guess you could say. Yeah. Because it is marketed to whatever age range. Yeah, it's it's going to be pretty consistent in that sense with not a ton of repetition at the end of the day, or not a ton of variation at the end of the day. Yeah. Though I will say that, on that note, shoujo, and now I've only I've only done one shoujo series, Snow White with the Red Hair, um, which the, the first volume of that just came out, and that that was a challenge, because it was in 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 a few ways it was really not like anything I'd ever done before. So Japanese is already a what in linguistics they call a a, a high context language, meaning that they mm. they say more with less. There are few words to get the same idea across whereas english we we tend to be relative to other languages very wordy we'll just go on and on and on and on to make one point mm-hmm. so in that vein shoujo or the one i've done so far you know i can only speak to my own experience is even more high context than like shonen so mm-hmm. the the character might just like say a few words and if you translated that literally it would be like this weird sentence fragment that didn't make any sense or it just seems sort of like half a thought. But then what you have to do is consider the entire plot, all the character relationships, this character in this scene and who they're talking to, and ask yourself, what are they actually implying here? Because there, there really are a lot of implications, I found, with, with the dialogue. And at one point, an editor gave me some advice that with, with the Shoujo stuff, you might be tempted like in, to make your translation um, more succinct. Like, because in, in general, that's sort of a, a a good habit. Like, you know, you don't want to be, ever be too wordy in writing. Um, But they said, no, 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 with shoujo, spell it out. Write it all out. Because English, again, is low context. So you want you want all the ideas. Put them in the sentence. Put them on the page. Get it out there. Don't want to leave it ambiguous for the reader. Because, you know, maybe one reader can could like figure out the context of the scene and make those those inferences but not everybody can and mm-hmm. the goal when we're putting out this product is you, you want people to understand the dialogue it's not a good translation if if people don't understand what's happening at the end of the day right so. especially for series that are really about exploring characters as tots and feelings and like kind of really getting into the heart of like their psychology which exactly. uh, a lot of the shoujo series I've read, you know, really are. They really are more feelings-focused and action-focused. So mm-hmm. in that case, mm-hmm. like, it's important to kind of have as much detail as possible to, like, really know where the character's heart is at. Exactly, yeah. No, that, and that, that's what I found, and that's that was kind of the challenge. And uh, I've, been, I've been working on that with that series, on on, on adjusting my writing to, to sort of fit those uh, circumstances, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. I need to pick up uh, the first one of Snow White since uh, I really mm. love the anime, so I'm I'm really glad okay. the manga's finally been licensed. 
Yeah, yeah. The response so far has seemed pretty good. Um, like even just on like Viz's tweets, <laughs> uh, where mm-hmm. they're advertising it, like people are like, "Oh my god, I love this one!" Like I can't wait to read it. So it's kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So you mentioned that you know there's there have been times where you've had to like you know consult uh editors, other people to like kind of un- figure out how to translate something. But have there been times where, you know, your personal experiences just living in Japan or just in life in general have really helped provide you context to make a transition decision that you hmm. might have not made otherwise without that? Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Uh, there's so many little details about uh, daily life or manners or habits or customs in Japan that you do see pop up in manga all the time. And um, experiencing that stuff firsthand definitely did, has made it more recognizable when it shows up in the work. So then I don't have to necessarily waste time doing like research to learn about it. Like, what's this custom all about in Japan? And one one very broad but good example is uh, school life. Hmm. It's one area where this really applies. School School culture in general is such a standardized and regimented and sort of ever-present thing in Japanese life that you are going to see those elements over and over in so many manga series, even ones that aren't set in school necessarily. You'll you'll see the parallels almost, like, oh yeah, this kind of feels like like the author's like making a, a, a it's, a, it's like a metaphor for like the hierarchies and and school almost. Um, and so yeah, work working in a middle school for two years did give me a lot of experience and context to draw on when translating those stories. Awesome. I mean, from your anecdotes that you've told about your time in Japan, I'm, I'm sure there's been a lot of, like, just interesting, like, small things that have happened that probably have kind of contributed to your work in, like, just small ways. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, okay, you know, here, here's one. Um, for, for people keeping up with uh, My Hero Academia, I pointed out that in, in the current point in the story, the... Uh, Meta Liberation Army's leader, the CEO, he's basically railing against the concept of the peg that sticks out gets nailed down. He hasn't he hasn't said that phrase exactly, but that's like that's the implication. And we don't we don't really have that phrase in the West because if anything, it's the opposite. We we say things like you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease, which is mm-hmm. suggesting make noise, like be special, like be flashy, and you'll get what you want. And you'll get ahead in life um, because we sort of value more exceptionalism or at least imagined exceptionalism. Whereas in Japan, it's like very much the opposite. Traditionally, it's like, you know, fulfill your role in society, keep your head down. So with something like that, you know, know, knowing that backdrop, that ideology, I think does lend a different reading, at least in this case, to like this character and this situation. Um, I, while doing it, I was thinking almost that it, it seems like Korikoshi is sort of by proxy criticizing a society that devalues individuality um, mm-hmm. and creates like drones. Um, the the word that we translate as quirk is literally kose, which is individuality. <laughs> and of course, this is from the, the villain's perspective, so maybe it's he's not saying like the villain is in the right. But on the other hand, the series does does tend to have nuanced villains who aren't just you know, 100% insane and evil. Like He's usually making a point of some sort. Mm-hmm. Staying, right? Yeah, he's a murderer, but he's also a little gray, a little morally like, oh, I can kind of see the point he's making. 
or even with um another good example is gentle gentle criminal how like i was also thinking about this how his in the story his expulsion from school sort of threw him off that preset track that everyone's supposed to follow school career family so he wound up a neat you know a not a, not a he he could go mori but like um just sort of like a, a reject from society with too much time on his hands and too many too many books about villainy so yeah as i was reading that arc too um it, it did feel like a sort of subtly japanese concept that this one slip up in life could derail your whole future almost in a sort of analogous way to like the kids i was teaching there how their their high school entrance exams were everything you know mm-hmm. the high whichever high school they they got into and chose that would determine the rest of their lives and there was sort of like no escaping that so then when horikoshi brings in a character like gentle and like shows like oh this is how it all went wrong I, yeah i did feel like there was this sort of extra layer of perspective um there and in, in terms of the translation with stuff like that i mean it's hard because of course when you're dealing with manga you can't you can't make up your own new content and you wouldn't want to. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, when when there is subtext that's worth exploring, I might decide to write a line a little more explicitly. Like I was saying before mm-hmm. about the uh the shojo comparison, like you can have a, a high context line or a low context line. In situations like this, I might, yeah, I'll just make the dialogue that much clearer. So there's there's less room for interpretation and mm-hmm. so that people sort of understand what I'm seeing as the subtext there. That I that I think Horikoshi is actually trying to communicate. That's really cool. I really do think that MHA, that there is a message about celebrating individualism in that that is very against that, you know, uh, uh, hammer down the nail yeah. that sticks out thing. Because yeah, it no. is a series about people who have like quirks that make them different from uh, everyone else, and that's something you know to celebrate. They can become heroes because of their differences. Exactly. That that does seem like the overall theme. Like yeah. <laughs> That Horikoshi is intent on exploring sort of every facet of what that means, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm also wondering, like, because you you've translated other pieces of media besides manga, you've also translated uh, art books, and you've translated for video games and novels. I'm wondering, like, do you do you have different approaches to translating depending on what you work on, and are there like any unique mm-hmm. challenges that come from you know, cha- uh, translating for one form of entertainment over other ones. Yeah, no, absolutely. So manga is definitely my, my bread and butter at this point. I'd say 90% of my income um, does come from manga. And yeah, at this point, like, I don't know if this is, is a bad way to put it. I basically translate on autopilot at this point, <laughs> which is to say I don't, you know, I don't have to stop and think with every sense, I'm not like pondering, like, how do I express this? It's more like, okay, again, this is shown, and I've seen this a million times. Just tap it out. But that said, the the challenge with manga in particular, I would say, is definitely characterization, mm-hmm. because with the exception of maybe a small amount of narration, usually all you've got to go on is is dialogue. So every every line out of a character's mouth has to be in his or her sort of distinct voice, or else you're going to end up with stories where everybody just sort of sounds the same and kind of flat. So the challenge is is figuring out first what kind of voice the author wants this character to have, and then, with that in mind, finding their voice in English. And, yeah, no, I definitely struggled with that at first. 
I don't think that comes naturally if you've never translated fiction before. Um, but at this point, basically, I have in my head three archetypal voices. There's flat, there's slangy, and there's fancy. Mm -hmm. And there are very few characters, I would argue, that you'd have trouble slotting into one of those three boxes. Like, if they don't fit into one of those three, like, it's, like, meant to be a very strange character. Like, something's going on there. But from there, of course, you get lots of variations on the themes. So the flat character could either be talkative with run-on sentences, like, like Midoriya, or more, like, clipped Hemingway sentences, like Todoroki. But they're both fundamentally flat. Whereas a slangy character could be, you know, rude and angry, like Bakugo, or cheerful and outgoing, like Kirishima. And then fancy could be like Yayorozu, who's, you know, still like thoughtful yeah. and like refined. But then you got Ida, who's just like a weird robot guy. But they both <laughs> fall in the fancy box. Right. And what about a character like Oyama? What would you call him? Would you call him fancy too? Oyama. Oh, okay. No, no. He's one of those weird ones who doesn't fit into any. <laughs> <laughs> More like eccentric. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good word for the fourth box. Yeah, eccentric mm. with his, like, random French. <laughs> but then, like, nobody's actually sure if he's really from France. It's like, hmm, <laughs> what's up with this guy? <laughs> a real Iyami, like, you know, Zamatsu. Yeah. <laughs> now, I want to discuss some of the other series you translate for outside of the Weekly Shonen Jump stuff. I think I'm most curious to learn what it's like to work on the Ruby manga, which is interesting as a manga adaptation of a source material that has already been written and voice acted in English. You currently translate the manga, and I have to ask, were you a fan of the show before working on it, or did you go into it completely unfamiliar with it? I feel like if I if I say it's the latter, that'll sound kind of bad. No. Um, yeah, no, no, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't into it before. The reason I ask is because you've worked on several series that have been a part of larger multimedia franchises, like the Ruby manga, the Dragon Ball Super manga, and the various Capcom-related art books you've done for Udon. So I was wondering, when you're working on these, are you given a style guide to reference while you're working on the translation, so you're able to accurately recognize and transcribe the official terminology, character names, and specific word choices and the like? So a good example, sorry, I'll get back to Ruby, but <laughs> like with Udon, back to Udon with some of the art books I do for them, those are always, of course, from pre-existing properties, like video games. And usually what happens there is that the licensor or the, uh, the, the original company, if it's like, I don't know, a Persona art book, maybe we're talking about Atlas. So they'll send over a style guide. They'll send over their, their, their Excel sheets from their production that have all, like, the terms and the character name spellings and, you know, like, set uh, preset phrases so that when then I'm translating this art book for them, I can refer to all that and keep it all consistent because what you don't want, you, you know, you don't want me making up new spellings for these characters that already exist, right? Mm -hmm. So Ruby, actually, though, is an interesting case. Um, the, the, the process in particular... Because as from what I understand, Rooster Teeth, the, the original um, company that made Ruby, is on their own. They're, they're like checking each chapter that we put out before it comes out Yeah. For, for content. They're making sure that it's all 
consistent with their their terminology and their world that they've built. So there was, um, for an example, in the the last chapter that came out, they talk about an organization called the White Fang. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing the translation, I, you know, I wrote White Fang, White Fang. And then when the chapter came out, I saw that they'd put the in front of it every time. So that mm-hmm. that tells me, oh, okay. So in the in their in their style guides, that their headquarters, it's always the White Fang. That's just that's just how it is, and that's the convention that they're following. That's interesting. So you you send in your first pass of the translation, and then on the editorial side, they uh, they use their reference sheets, their official like style guide, and then like fix any you know minor terminology things that you know yeah. need to be made like that. Yeah, no, I, I think actually in this case, it's actually Rooster Teeth that is going through the script. Hmm. Like Viz sends it to them. Yeah. I imagine they have a close working relationship for a couple of years now. You know, yeah. They have had that partnership with Rooster Teeth when it comes to handling, handling the Ruby-related properties. Though, exactly. Uh, whenever I've listened to the Show and Jump podcast and they talk about the Ruby manga, I don't know how many people on staff have actually watched the series mm. from the way hmm. they talked about it. But regardless, uh, thank, I think thanks to Rooster Teeth, you know, checking over all the stuff, like, uh, I never have felt they've gotten anything wrong. This isn't like, uh, four kids, uh, yeah. not, not knowing no. <laughs> their own series they're talking about. This isn't like a trainer's choice. What does Arbok evolving to? The Viper! Oh wow, four kids! <laughs> I didn't right. know that. That's very interesting. <laughs> so that's very cool to see. And, uh, and I wonder, it's like they're, for like, other series, like maybe some, like a series like Dragon Ball, which had kind of like an established mm-hmm. base mm-hmm. of terms from like the original translation. Like, do you yeah. have a reference sheet for that, for like how things are translated? I sure fucking do. Yeah, no, I got like <laughs> three or four, really from like going back to the the original time that Viz started putting out uh, English editions. I, I have like reference sheets from way back then. So there, there's a few different ones. Which can be a little confusing sometimes. It's like, where where am I looking? Like, is Boo spelled B-O-O or B-U-U? It's like, ah. But yeah. um, no, thankfully, editorial they're they're on top of that that shit too. They they're they're making sure it's consistent. Um, going back, yeah. Though I imagine because even in the original translation there were inconsistencies. So like, I yeah. can imagine that sometimes it can be confusing. I remember like uh, I made a comment on the chapter last year where it was like in the tournament of power, Tien was using. Uh, his Kiko Ho, oh, and yeah, then I, I, I that. saw that it was translated as a Chi Kung Pao, and I was like, "What? This is the Kiko Ho?" And I checked the the I checked the omnibuses, and I was like, "No, it's Kiko Ho here." And so I remember uh-huh. I wrote a comment, and it was like, "Uh, why is this uh, Chi Kung Pao? What happened?" Hmm. My official position is no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Necessarily. <laughs> I like my job. <laughs> but no, I, I find it very interesting, especially when, you know, you have really long running complex series with so many characters and so many yeah. like terms and phrases to keep track of. Like it, mm-hmm. it's easy to forget like what is our official stance on this when, you right. know, you're handling franchises that uh other companies are in charge of where they uh mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. names for the characters are different. Yep. And yeah, no, one of the, actually one of the style sheets I have for Dragon Ball is from Toei, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. So it's like, okay, they they have an opinion too. <laughs> Every, everybody gets a say. Yeah. 
the eternal frustration of the Dragon Ball fandom in the U.S. is the is the oh, weird yes. inconsistencies between all the versions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Frieza, I-E-E-E, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the fans just need to understand that we're all human. Everybody's mm. just doing their best, you know. Nobody's out to, like, destroy your your your, your favorite property. <laughs> mm-hmm. But on the subject of just fandom, you know, even before, you know, you started working in Minecraft Crash, like, you were a fan. You mentioned, you know, you were on Arlong Park forums and stuff, and you were a big fan of One Piece uh, mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. But also, you are an amazing, like, sculptor, and uh, you have a great like mm-hmm. skill in that and you've made so many sculptures of like uh video game characters anime manga characters and mm-hmm. i was very interested in like how would you pick up this skill and mm-hmm. uh when did you like first start making your like fan art sculptures uh and like just sharing them and like has your expertise in translation and sculpting ever intertwined in any way <laughs> well uh, first of all thank you that's too many compliments i'm sorry um but <laughs> Yeah, no, but that that stuff it, it I started doing it as a hobby, I guess back in high school. No no formal training. It was it was like the days before YouTube tutorials were really a thing. So I just sort of figured it out trial and error. Um I'll always say that I don't really have a creative bone in my body in the sense that like I would never and could never come up with original content or characters. <laughs> no no OC for me. Um yeah, it's always just pre-existing properties that i'm already a fan of um that's why i'd like never start an etsy shop because like nintendo would sue me or whatever but uh <laughs> yeah no we- weirdly enough right the-, the intersection did come with um what i mentioned earlier about udon's Mega Man tribute book and how that directly led to me getting some translation work which has been really cool but it yeah sculpture has never showed up in the translation <laughs> if that's what you mean but your sculptures have shown up in a manga Specifically, your sculptures have been featured several times in the Usopp's Gallery, a fan art column including the One Piece volumes, haven't they? Yeah, um, in volumes uh, 54, 56, 58, 60, I got some pictures of my sculptures in there with my pen name, with my pseudonym, so I can't, I can't prove it was me, but... <laughs> well, I think the proof is all there online, where you can compare the pictures included in the Usopp's Gallery to those on your DeviantArt page. Though, unfortunately, our North American-based listeners will need to seek out the original Japanese editions of those volumes to do that. It's a shame the Usopp's gallery isn't retained in Viz's English editions. I wonder why. Yeah, I think it would be... <laughs> it would be a lot of work, um, because, like, there was, there's actually a similar, like, little art gallery corner in the Kuroko's Basketball books. Mm. And um, those did not get published either in the English editions, but for the first few books, I didn't know that. So I actually translated them all, oh. including text within the art, like little handwritten, like I did this because I did not know that it wasn't going to be used. And that was that was rough. So um, on the one hand, I, I do understand why they why they don't do it. But yeah, I don't know. Could be nice. Yeah. Or didn't back in the day, didn't they like uh, solicit art from English fans or am I crazy? Yeah, they did have fan art corners and they would include fan art in the back of volumes. Yeah, yeah, that was a thing. And yeah, interestingly enough. Horikoshi actually got a piece of fan art in one of the One Piece volumes mm-hmm. when he was like uh, when he was a teen or something. <laughs> yeah, and that's a really cool connection you and him share. Like you were both published in the Usopp's gallery. Right, right. If I, uh, I mean, I did, I did meet him, but we didn't like to have a long conversation. So if I ever meet him again, <laughs> maybe I'll bring that up. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
that makes us like equals, right? <laughs> and it's a shame that they aren't in the English edition of the volumes, but I encourage everyone to head over to Caleb's DeviantArt to like see all the pictures of his sculptures because they are just so incredible. Like, as far as the One Piece ones goes, you've done ones of, like, so many of the villains that are super cool. You did yeah. one with Kid with his giant, like, mechanical arm, which is so detailed. I love it. Like, one with Luffy having mm-hmm. all these different expressions. These are so great. And, like, I really love uh, the sculptures you have of, like, just these giant sets. Like, the Majora's Mask one. My yeah. dude, that is just so detailed. And that one is incredible, man. That I think that might be the, my favorite thing I've ever done. And you say giant sets; those are actually very tiny. Each, each one of the Loma Jor's mm. masterpieces like fits in the palm of my hand. So wow, and that just makes it even more insane that you're able to like put so much detail in something so small. Like still make it mm. feel like you know this is the massive map of the the world in Majora's Mask. It's just so crazy. <laughs> You know, I, Majora's Mask is probably my favorite game. That's, like, the only reason I would put so much effort into that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, your Twitter avatar is, like, a sculpture of Senku. And, like, you've yep. done a lot of uh, sculptures of Senku with different expressions that are all really great. Yep, yep. No, that, that that's another thing I love about Dr. Stone. I mean, of course, Buichi's a great artist to start with, with his, like, hyper-realistic style that he uses more in his other series. But then you get Dr. Stone, where there's just, like, so many great hilarious face faults which is all these goofy expressions and i i really like that i was like i want to make this in 3d <laughs> <laughs> thank you and like it takes just so much talent to construct a 3d figure of like a 2d drawing even if you have a reference like to visualize it all in 3d and like figure out like the stuff that you're not seeing on that 2d image and like just map that out. That that takes an incredible amount of skill. So I'm just in awe of all your sculptures and what you're able to do with them. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But I think we talked about your art. We talked about translation. I mean, you've just done so much uh, in your career that's just been so exciting and fun. I was wondering just, like, mm-hmm. speculatively, like, looking forward in the future, like, what? Like manga, is there any particular manga or series or just something you'd you'd love to work on if you ever got the chance to? Mm. Well, I mean, if Stephen Paul ever wants to take a vacation, I would happily substitute <laughs> on One Piece. <laughs> I'm just kidding. In terms of specific titles, I don't know. I don't really think about things like that too much. Um, in that in that like zoomed out macro sense, because ninety nine percent of the jobs I get are like. The editor just emails me out of the blue and it's like, hey, do you want to do this one? So, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like a, a freelancer still early in their career, which I do consider myself to be. I'm not even six years in. Typically, you can't be like, hey, publisher, like, give me this series because I want it. <laughs> there's, there's probably all sorts of considerations that go on behind the scenes, um, you know, at the publishers, understandably so. So, in that sense, yeah, I don't, I don't think about it day-to-day when it's like still the priority is is like paying the bills um i i guess i do like the idea in general of being like the go-to guy for my hero related stuff <laughs> like the um i mean the spin-offs the novels mostly because it, it makes sense from a practical standpoint like i have all the background knowledge but um but also from a, a petty selfish standpoint um definitely mm-hmm. yeah i don't know if horikoshi ever did a different series in the future 
I would, I would, I would kind of like to do that, which probably sounds petty too, but I know, I know there are translators um, much more esteemed and experienced than me out there who do have that sort of situation going on where they're the designated translator for like, you know, a given author or whatever. I don't know. That sounds like something to aspire to in a sense. Mm-hmm. And even beyond the realm of translation, like what is something that you'd love to do just in the future? Just in general, like just something fun that you haven't tried yet. Like, like in terms of work, do you mean? Yeah, or even just like something for fun that's, I guess, related to like this field mm. of manga and anime. Fun? What is fun? I don't know about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't really think of anything for fun. I, I mean, in terms of the actual work, I would, I would definitely like to do some literary translation someday. I think, in a way, that would be fun. It would be something different and a little more challenging, slightly more. No, I'm not going to say prestigious. Manga's great. I love manga. I'm not going to shit on it. But yeah, I don't know. Just just having more more translation experiences in general, like uh, more variety, I think would be would be exciting someday. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think that about does it for our questions, but we have some great questions that we've got over on Twitter and on our Discord from our friends Marion and Wensleydale. And uh, we got a lot of Dr. Stone questions from Marion mm-hmm. that uh, I think are going to be really fun to dig into. And okay. perhaps uh, we'll start with those. And Marion's first question is, uh, what's your favorite invention slash science level up that Senku's mm. introduced. Hmm. Let me think. Favorite. I guess it would have to be the uh, sulfonamide antibiotics. Like a lot of a lot of the other things that have come up in the series are, are like cooler on the surface than drugs. Mm. But um, <laughs> the drugs came so early on almost that it was even more mind blowing, and it sort of proved the point that Senku's always trying to make um, that even these impossible seeming things are possible if you break them down into the basic components and then approach the project with like a clear roadmap that just like illustrated that so well because when he when he was like we're gonna make antibiotics you were like what the like how on earth is that ever gonna happen and then like 15 chapters later oh he he did it yeah (laughs) and yeah in that sense the the cell phone and the radio was cool too not the cell phone and the radio the cell phone that basically was a radio (laughs) because also because yeah so many of those components ended up being useful in other ways and like I was saying yeah. earlier, Inagaki does a great job of showing how much like characters incorporate those elements into their daily lives, like sort of without without rehashing it, but it's always just sort of there, like, oh yeah, they made that thing like twenty chapters ago and now they're just using it in their daily lives. Um Yeah, I find that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are just so many really fascinating the way Doctor Stone is able to explore science and like how you can like with the least amount of tools at your disposal like create like these powerful things that we use in our daily lives like phones like radio is really awesome yeah i think because the idea of the phone that came like at such a point early on where i was like whoa they're gonna do this now but i think that might be my favorite just for how surprising it was like just the science behind it and like how when you broke it down Mm. oh this is something that you can experiment at at home with the right stuff right right like it turns out, like uh, circuit boards that they used for the, the radios, it was it was just a piece of plastic. Like that's all it was. Yeah. Plastic with holes in it, and you connect wires through the holes, and that it's like, oh, okay, I get that. <laughs> it's not that complicated. 
Have you ever tried doing any of these of the experiments in Doctor Stone yourself? Yeah. <laughs> if you remember the <laughs> No, no, it's really stupid. Don't don't gasp just yet. Uh <laughs> during the uh, the battle against Tsukasa when they again makes a paper airplane and dips it in the dynamite fluid and to like throw it across the battlefield and shock everybody. He claims like, "Oh, this was the world record holding paper plane." And in the chapter, he explains how to make it. So I did, I did make that. And I, I threw it in my backyard. I think I, I put that video on Twitter, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was pretty good. It went, it went a distance. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like 30 feet. I don't know. <laughs> but I would, uh. That's pretty far. No, it's a, it's a good design. <laughs> I'd, I'd actually love to try making, making the paper though. Cause if you remember, they do, they make paper at one point. Of course. Yeah. Um, Mostly because if I if I'm ever gonna get like an autograph or a doodle from Inagaki or Boichi, I mean it would have to be on homemade paper. Come on, it's the least I could do. Mm-hmm. Definitely one way to reduce the number of uh, people getting in line for the autographs. Avoid a, a situation with Koryokoshi with everyone scrambling to get the tickets. No, you gotta work for it this time. <laughs> but. You know, there's been so many awesome inventions in Dr. Stone. Uh, Marion's last mm. question is, like, is there a specific science advancement slash creation that you would get hyped slash look forward to seeing that hasn't been introduced yet? Yeah, I mean, the the eventual rocket ship, which we know has to happen at some point, that that's going to be mm-hmm. insane. Like, it just in, in the sense of, like, looking back how far we've come. But, um, no, but at that point, like, they're probably not going to do the little detailed roadmaps. So in a way, it wouldn't that cool but uh or, or i guess computers that'd be interesting um computers are definitely gonna happen at some point and they might jump like straight to the modern coin but i think it'd be neat if they did it in more in stages starting with like the primitive mechanical computers the predecessors to the modern kind i think that'd be really neat mm-hmm. the rocket ship is gonna be like probably the big one because yeah that's kind of like the culmination that'll be like the end game Right, right. They have to eat the ramen in space to fulfill yeah. his father's dying <laughs> words. Or whatever. Uh, I think that is like the peak. It's literally going to be like, at that point, they've left Earth. What else? How can you go beyond from there? Maybe right. they've uh, gone beyond the Earth, the atmosphere. But I guess moving on then to a question about characters, like who among the depetrified uh, characters have the best crack incorporated to design? Oh, the, the crack, the stone crack, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely Gen Asagiri. He has the coolest crack. Because, I don't know, like, the others are mostly purely decorative. Except Ryusui's fingers, I guess, because he's always snapping, so that's, like, kind of relevant. But Gen's crack looks like those, like, beast jaws on one cheek, which thematically, like, ties into him using his mouth as his weapon. And uh, it also actually, like, changes in appearance, depending on how innocent or, like, faux evil he's supposed to be in a given scene. But, like, if he's, like, scheming something, you know, like, be extra toothy. And if he's just being innocent, then it's just, like, a little line. <laughs> I guess I really like Ryusui. Mm. Mm-hmm. The stone markings on him, I, do, I think that looks pretty striking. Like, he kind of has, like, a, a gloves from a stone. Right. I think that's really cool. But, again... Boichi's character designs are so good. I I do think in terms of just character design overall, again, it's really up there. Yeah, he's cool. I I really want to make a a, a sculpture of him actually. 
<laughs> someday. Someday. I'm looking forward to that. But um, on the subject of, well, I guess the other author, Inagaki the writer, like, have you have you read any other manga by Inagaki before? Or wanted to after working on Dr. Stone? Um, I have not read any before. I would definitely like to get around to reading uh, Shield 21 at some point. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not much of a sports fan in general, but uh, no, recommendation taken. I, I will also try to definitely get around to iShield 21. I don't, I don't think it's in the uh, the Viz Vault. And uh, Oh yeah, no, no, another another point about that one. There's actually been an instance of a very, very subtle callback to iShield 21 in Dr. Stone. Mm-hmm. So it would probably be to my benefit to have that background knowledge. <laughs> yeah, that that's when um, I think Senku is describing the power plant they're going to make. And Gen is like, oh, is it electric? Is it nuclear? And Senku's like, no, it's man-powered. And there's a picture of, like, these bulky, burly men pushing, a like, a wheel. And, yeah, <laughs> Kurita was one of them. Yeah. And then to touch on uh, another person involved in making the manga, Marion's next question is, what's it like being able to speak casually with science consulting Karate, uh, at least on Twitter? Yeah, oh, so he's... He seems like a really great guy. Um, he's actually like I think taken his fame—I don't know if you want to call it fame—fame fame with, with <laughs> Doctor Stone and spun it off into his own sort of media projects. He's put out a few books about science, like about like mad science, oh. and he has like little uh, little YouTube series. And he's working on the there's a certain little YouTube series with Mecha Senku, which is promoting the anime. Mm. Like he does these, you know, these little skits. Um, so anyway, yeah, no, he's he's a really cool guy, and I think I think he reached out to me initially, I believe, like because he noticed my trivia and stuff, and but he's been very forthcoming and helpful whenever um whenever I re- very rarely, of course, needed needed help on uh, some of the science stuff in Doctor Stone, where it was just like I have no idea what's going on here, like can you please explain this? So he's he's doing the consulting on both ends, which is really neat. Yeah, there's another one actually, uh, another science consultant who's I don't think is credited. His name is Aruma Zero, which is like a pun on armadillo. And <laughs> he also comments on my trivia sometimes and offers uh, further insights. He does like quote retweets and like gives some extra trivia, <laughs> which is really, it's cool to have the, the people involved on in the Japanese side of production actually interested in what we're doing with the English adaptation, since that feels like something relatively new and recent in the history of the industry, I think. That's awesome. Social media has really made it, easy for people to kind of connect with each other and kind of co- collaborate and communicate i think yeah, it's yeah. so awesome just curate your timeline don't follow shitty people and you'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> excellent and marion's last question is uh what's a scene that got you completely invested into any of your favorite characters mm-hmm. i really like the the scene when they finally give suika her glasses and she can see the see yeah. the world for the first time. That was like, oh, this is so so sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was moving. Or of course, um, at the end of the astronaut flashback, when Byaku yeah, is passing down, you know, a village's worth of descendants for his son, thousands of years later, and then like he has his recording on the glass record. Something about I don't know, like those emotional connections and communication over absurdly large gaps of time just just really gets to me it, it always feels really poignant and almost bittersweet but like oh, those moments make me fall in love with the series <laughs> yeah 
I think one of my favorites is with Gen and like you know how he he gets uh, attacked by magma and like mm. you know uh, uh, Senku fixes him up and then he kind of like scrambles and you're led to believe for a bit that oh he's he's run back to Sakasa's camp he's gonna betray them but then you you see the conversation he has with Senku and he's like yeah you know I really would like a cola yeah. I love that. I love that, you know, what ultimately wins Gen over and kind of forms the bond of trust between him and Senku is kind of like the promise of getting to drink a cola. And then the moment where he like, he actually, he he does get to drink the cola is so yeah. nice too. I love that. No, that's a good one too. <laughs> I think that's old Gen is probably my favorite character in the series for sure. Mm-hmm. And that does it for uh, Marion's Dr. Stone questions, but we got some questions from Wensley, though, over on our Discord. And he has a Dr. Stone question, uh, a question that combines Dr. Stone and MHA. And Wensley Dale asks, all of you have MHA quirks, but they're based on Dr. Stone chapter titles. What are they, and what are their powers? Okay, so I will admit that you, you guys gave me this question ahead of time because I would not be able to come up with it off yeah. the top of my head. Um, yeah, after looking over those chapter titles, I think... Cool one would be Hard Knocks Crafting Club. Mm. And what it would do, bear with me, think like basically alchemy from Full Metal Alchemist. Like, yeah. if you have an object, you can break it down into its core components, its elements, and then reform it into anything else that uses those elements. I think that would be, that'd be neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really awesome one. Uh, if I had to answer this question, I, I would go with need bread, start with wheat. <laughs> <laughs> Where you can use wheat to make all sorts of uh, bread-based weapons that you can bread-based use weapons. to entrap your enemy. Like, a, you can build a gingerbread house, gingerbread prison, and keep your, <laughs> lock your enemies inside. Or uh, you can make a really long French bread that you can whack someone with. <laughs> uh, I think that would be really fun. Would you Would you also be able to make, like, cakes and stuff? Yeah, yeah. You'd oh, make okay, these <laughs> really delicious sugary cakes that your opponent can't resist taking a bite of. Or, or the sugar is just so much that they become hyper and lose control of their own quirks. I think that's mm. even, that'd be even funnier. We would, you would team up well with uh, Sato from... My Euro Academia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be great. If you were to make a quirk out of Stone World, what would it be? Hmm. You could turn people into stone with a touch. That's very villainous. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one guy from Shiketsu High School who I I localized his quirk name as stiffening, not hardening. It's very very similar in in name to Kirishima's, but he can he can turn objects hard, mm. but not not people. We haven't had a quirk that turns people to hardness to stone. Mm-hmm. Now that'd be very interesting. I wonder how the characters of MEJ would deal with the crisis, like in Doctor Stone, where people suddenly turn to stone. Would there be a quirk that could undo it right there and then? Potential crossover fanfic idea. Mm. <laughs> Question to be answered by fanfiction, or maybe if they ever made an official crossover. But uh, we'll wrap up with a final question from Dale, which hmm. is not related to manga at all. But he asks, hello, Caleb, how much do you cook? 
How much do I cook? Oh, I've never heard this mm-hmm. one before. No. <laughs> I cook a good deal um, to save money, mostly. <laughs> I tend to cook my own dinners at home. And I definitely did a lot in Japan, too, uh, which was mm. fun, because you got to go to the uh, the Japanese supermarket and just pick out, like, random fish. Mm. Other sort of interesting ingredients that you don't necessarily have in the U.S. <laughs> what were your favorite things to cook in Japan? Honestly, the fish. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the mm. fish in the sense that it's so much cheaper there. <laughs> oh, like even even where I was inland in the mountains, fish was just absurdly cheap, and you could get like a big old piece of it for like five dollars, and I would just go home and like pop it in the toaster and uh, like put some like sauce on it, just put, put, put like a glaze, and just make all these interesting. Like I had no idea what this what the fish was or how you're supposed to cook it, but it was fun. Mm. And then here, or now in New Zealand, uh, what do you like mm. to cook usually? Well, when in Rome, um, I cook a lot of lamb because that's what they have here. <laughs> and, and again, mm. it's sort of the way fish was in Japan. It, it, lamb is very cheap here, which is a big advantage that I'm taking taking advantage of in the meantime. Yeah, I probably, I probably eat lamb like three or four times a week. I don't know. Maybe that much red meat is not good. It's delicious. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't fault that, uh, you know. You went in Rome, and uh, when you have good food available, why not eat it? Exactly. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- with that question, that wraps us up with our fan questions. Thank you again to Marion Wensleydale. Mm. And I think that wraps us up with the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, Caleb. This was an awesome conversation, and it was amazing to hear about your experiences and your thoughts mm. on translation, and it was just a really fun time. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. This it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But before we let you go, I do have one last question for you. Where can the good people find you on social media to read your Twitter threads and keep up with all the work you do? Ah, good question. Um, you can find me on Twitter at cdcubed, and from there, there's a link to my uh, my personal website, which has like my list of translated works and all that, and and links to all the trivia threads. If anybody is reading through My Hero Academia or Dr. Stone and wants to sort of use those as readers' companions, um, I, have, I have the full sort of index with links to all those threads. Mm-hmm. And if you guys want to read Kayla's writings and look at all his artworks, we'll leave links to his website and DBR page in the show notes. Colton and I will do our plug later on, but Caleb, I want to thank you for joining us to talk about your work and career journey. And we can't wait to have you on again. Thank you. And that was a fantastic interview with Caleb. Once again, follow him on Twitter. Uh, check up on his art at his Deviant page. Links to all that in the description. We were delighted to speak with him, and we can't wait to have him on the show again. But now it's time to wrap up the show. But before we do that, we are going to give our community shout-out for this week. And this week, we've got a video that I recently found from Quaman that was floating around. Because recently, Juneteenth happened, which is a celebration of the uh, freedom of enslaved uh, black people in Texas. And more generally, the emancipation of you know African Americans in the U.S. Uh, in general. So... 
you know, there were a lot of tweets going around about people's favorite black characters in anime, you know, just to celebrate, you know, the uh, pride in African-American uh, heritage and characters and stuff, or black characters in general. And, you know, a lot of people were, like, tweeting uh, in those tweets, you know, about Piccolo. People do really heavily uh, identify with Piccolo as a black character, you know, even though in the series uh, he's uh, an alien race, he's a Namekian and whatnot. But people uh, have always, like, really... I. You know, especially in the people I've talked to, you know, in the fandom, they really do identify with Piccolo as kind of like black representation, like a black character. And so there's this great video from Quaman that I saw floating around, kind of a relationship for that, that I think, you know, offers a great perspective on why, uh, like, Piccolo kind of resonates with them, you know, as African Americans, like, as black people, and, you know, makes some really interesting connections, like how P the way Piccolo is a fodder to Gohan, the way he mentors him, you know, it feels true to experiences of a lot of, you know, black kids and with their fathers, and like how, you know, they were raised by their fathers like this idea of like the strict black dad who shows tough love to his kid uh there was this really interesting connection they made where they were talking about like piccolo kind of being detached from his heritage like like as a as someone who was taken from namek uh, as a young boy you know grew up on earth he's kind of divorced from like his place of ancestry and that's like kind of resonant to how a lot of black people feel uh, or black viewers of Dragon Ball felt about, you know, uh, how they felt about their heritage, you know, and feel about, like, uh, Africa. And so it was a really interesting, like, perspective that, you know, Piccolo's desire to kind of see Namek and then kind of fight for his home in the Freezer arc, like, that resonated because it, like, it tapped into that idea of, like, returning to your home and being proud of where you came from. And I thought it was really thoughtful. You know, it's a really fun conversation too. You know, they make some they make some fun jokes about like, oh, you know, Piccolo is totally black because he'd be really good at sports. But like, it's a really great. I thought it was really you know from the heart conversation. You know, from the perspective of you know black two black fans of Dragon Ball. You know, reflecting on how why they identify as Piccolo as black. Why you know the fandom in general kind of sees Piccolo as like black representation and i thought it was really cool and i thought it uh was a really interesting you know articulation of something you know that i've thought about and i've seen people discuss for a long time so definitely want to link that in the description uh now check out paul man's other dragon ball videos too he does some good stuff but uh now i think we have to close off the show and uh just mention where all the good people can find us and stuff as for me, you can find me at Lomomiyasha on Twitter, Lomomiyasha on Animation Revelation, Annie List, wherever it is, Lomomiyasha, that's where you can find me. You can also find me on all-comer.com, I write reviews, I make the Lum Squad podcast, the Yurisuyatsu podcast I record with AC that comes out, uh, you know, every now and again. Still working to get that second episode up if it's not out already. But in the coming week, because of Anime Expo, I definitely hope to write up some of the premieres that I'll be attending, some of my experiences, definitely you can look forward to that uh in the near future too and definitely i'll probably have some uh, manga reviews just uh here and there uh in the coming weeks as well hopefully uh definitely plan on them Mm-hmm. yeah uh definitely go follow lum and all their stuff uh 
you know, be be sure to say hi to them at uh, at Anime Expo if, if you see them around. I'm sure they'd really appreciate it. I would. And uh, yeah, I guess as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. Um, I host a few other podcasts, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, over at GintalifeLessons.wordpress.com. It's on a bit of a hiatus at the moment. Still don't know when I'm bringing that show back at the moment, but uh, we do have a huge backlog of episodes that you can listen to. Uh, again, if you're a Gintama fan, you definitely want to go listen to that, over, again, over at GintalifeLessons.wordpress.com. I also co-host a uh, Detective Conan podcast called One Podcast Prevails over at OnePodcastPrevails.com. Uh, like I said, I co-hosted with my friend Doc over at the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast. Uh, it's a really fun show. I'm a huge fan of Conan. Uh, probably not as huge of a, a fan of, as V-Lord, but uh, it's, I still have a really fun time recording that show. And if you're a fan of Conan, you definitely want to go listen to that again at OnePodcastRails.com. But as for all comic and the podcast, uh, you can find every episode of our podcast over at all-comic.com. Uh, unless we decide to post it earlier on uh, uh, on our Patreon over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. If you subscribe to at least a $2 tier, uh, you will get early access to select podcasts. Uh, we definitely have some podcasts that we're going to be recording here pretty soon that we'll probably be putting up on the Patreon uh, as early as weeks ahead of the time that we're going to be putting them up. Um, so yeah, you definitely want to go subscribe to that. Or even subscribe to our $5 tier uh, if you want to take a listen to our bonus podcast we post up every month. Again, we mentioned our uh, we mentioned uh, the Captain Marvel episode of At Movies. We're definitely going to be putting that up on June 30th if you uh, want to subscribe to our $5 tier to get that bonus podcast. As well as one bonus podcast at the end of every month. Um, so again, you can find all that bonus content over at patreon.com slash mavericks. Uh, but you can also follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on or on tumblr.com at uh, manga mavericks.tumblr.com. Uh, we mentioned our YouTube channel earlier. Subscribe to us at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we've been posting, uh, you know, uh, different jumpstart discussions recently and whatnot. Uh, we also post different excerpts of like, you know, whatever news pieces we talk about, you know, and, you know, whatever other manga we talk about on the show, uh, as such as our like our other like discussions and re retrospectives and whatnot. Uh, sometimes we upload some exclusive content every once in a while. So, again, you want to subscribe to us at YouTube.com slash Manga Mavericks. Uh, email us anything at uh, manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what do you think about all the news we talked about this episode? Uh you know, what, what What did you think about our interview with Caleb? Uh, do you have any industry guests that you would like to hear on the podcast? Uh, again, uh, just whatever manga you're reading, whatever thoughts you have on the podcast, if you email us, we will read it on the show. Again, that's at uh, mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, the artist formerly known as iTunes, especially since iTunes probably doesn't exist anymore. Um... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, uh, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, it really helps the visibility of our show and just it, it just helps us get out there in general. Um, we, we, we appreciate any reviews or ratings that you guys leave us. Um, but, yeah, I think that is going to be about it for this episode. And, yeah, um, this has been episode 92 of the podcast. And we will see you guys next time for episode 93. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.